This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered. Yes, we are recovering from the Academy Awards. Are we really? I want to know, did you actually watch the Academy Awards? I, it was on in my home. <laughs> okay. And I watched some of it. So I actually tried out YouTube TV. Because I couldn't watch it when it was happening. Yeah. Well, I didn't figure out a way to extend the record time like you can on a DVR, you know? Yeah. So I probably missed the last 45 minutes of it. So like all the big winners, but no big deal. (laughs) It it, it seemed a little more political than normal. And yeah, I think there was one Trump reference. Oh, no, I'm talking, yeah, about, but every other issue of life. Oh, sure. Came up. And I. Oh, yeah. I mean, I and I didn't know a lot of the movies, but I was surprised by some things. Jordan Peele, is that his name? Key and Peele's uh, Jordan Peele, most uh, incredible Oscar moment. He won. He won. He won. That's just, that's it's great. I mean, it's not enough that his movie made over two hundred million dollars on a budget of four and a half million, but his yeah. debut film, he wins an Oscar. That's amazing. Not many people can say that. That really is amazing. Um, Anyway, so you were able to see some. You were able to see three quarters. I saw of the it. first three hours of it. I mean, that's another thing. Is three hours? I mean, the Super Bowl was yeah. faster than this thing. There were some pretty good bits. It was missing all of the fun Matt Damon jabs yeah. from the first one, but I guess they'd already done that last year. So why repeat itself? Which is funny because they had the same host and they had a lot of the same presenters, including. Warren Beatty and uh, Faye Dunaway. Yeah, they were back. Not that they were responsible for the flub. In (laughs) fact, when Jimmy Kimmel was uh, uh, presenting them to present the, the award for Best Picture, he said... It's we've forgotten about it. It's all Waterhouse under the bridge <laughs> for Waterhouse Cooper, the accountants right. that made the mistake. <laughs> it was good. I mean, I don't know. You know, my favorite bit from what? the night, though, what? he he talked about how so many people uh, the the Oscar ceremony was just too long. And like I said, I only saw the first three hours and missed quite a few awards. Yeah. So there was an incentive for people <laughs> to get through their speeches quickly. Whoever gives the shortest speech tonight will go home with, Johnny, tell them what they'll win. It's a brand new jet ski. And oh, the great, great thing was he got Dame Helen Mirren to <laughs> to be the Vanna White, if yeah. you will, of the jet ski. And uh, he made sure to, to uh, specify that Helen Mirren was not included with the jet ski. It... Uh... <laughs> That was so, so if you if you tune in late and all of a sudden they're bringing out a jet ski, mm-hmm. you're thinking, what has happened to this place? But the jet ski wasn't the only incentive prize. I feel like some of you aren't taking the uh, jet ski thing as seriously as I had hoped. So we're sweetening the pot. Johnny? A trip to sunny Lake Havasu. <laughs> And they, he made true. To, he made good on that promise because at the end, I think with a time of 36 seconds, the costume designer who won from the film Phantom Thread rode out on the jet ski and won the trip to Lake Havasu. Wow. I mean, you need a lake trip if you're going to have a jet ski. Jimmy Kimmel said, 
Why thank your mom in your speech when you can take her on a ride on your new jet ski? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was uh, it was quite a thing. Frances uh, McDon- McDormand. I've, I didn't mm-hmm. see this. This I, is her I, second win. Is it really? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any of these movies. That's why it wasn't as interesting for me. Oh, and uh, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, Matt. What? But the one film or the one award for which your favorite movie was nominated, yeah. The Greatest Showman, yeah. uh, here's how that turned out. And the Oscar goes to Mexico, Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez yeah. for Remember Me. Great Come song. Back. That made my night right there. I think that was the one I was most excited for. That was your favorite song. That's the one that brings you to tears every time we play it. Oh, yeah. Man, it's a good time. Well, uh, we'll come back. We'll do more, I'm sure, Oscar talk because Kobe Bryant wins an Oscar. you got to talk to Spencer and Jeremy about that. I know. I, oh, what's happening to this world? It was funny to see him uh, accept the award with, his, with the guy who illustrated it, I suppose, because they had to raise the mic about two feet when they got <laughs> to Kobe's turn. <laughs> Bring up the mic. All right, let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? President Trump has already spoken to world leaders about his proposed steel and aluminum tariffs and made clear he would not budge on providing exemptions, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said on Sunday. The decision obviously is his, but as of the moment, as far as I know, he's talking about a fairly broad brush. I have not heard him describe particular exemptions as of yet, Ross told ABC This Week. Speaking on CNN, top White House trade advisor Peter Navarro said particular uh, cases might warrant an exemption, but there would be no country exclusions uh, to allow entire nations to avoid the tariffs. Donald Trump's emphatic promise to exempt Australians. He he promised Australia, apparently, when he was talking with their prime minister, we'll exempt you from any steel and aluminum tariffs. This was made in front of... uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary was there. The Commerce Secretary was there. The Chief Economic Advisor was there. He made this promise to the Prime Minister yeah. of Australia, and now they're like, nah, not really. Oh, that's so we'll the see old, what happens. Uh, yeah, that's the old A-mate and switch. So you're making promises. You're backing off promises. Australia's yeah. like, what about us? And everyone so far is saying, yeah, everyone's on board. Uh, everyone's on the tariff. Oh, well. uh, other what stories. A new Who year- haven't we offended now? Right. Pretty much, and this is tough because when you start making promises and then you just yeah, throw so grandma used to teach yeah, who's going to trust you? A story today out: a New Yorker profile of a Russia of the Trump Russia dossier author Christopher Steele. Oh, but what? he made the dossier right. Yeah. There's actually two dossiers. Oh wow, that came out later. I think they're dossium. Dossium is that the plurality of dossier? I don't know. I'll have to look that up. So they report on a lesser-known memo the former MI6 spy allegedly discussed with Special Counsel Robert Mueller. According to the report, in late November 2016, Steele relayed information from his Russian sources that the senior Kremlin officials had intervened to block Mitt Romney as President-elect Trump's choice for Secretary of State. Reporter Jane Mayer writes that Moscow had asked Trump to appoint someone who would be willing to lift sanctions related to Ukraine and cooperate with Russia's involvement in Syria. Romney, a vocal hawk on Russia, declined to comment for the report. The White House said the former GOP presidential nominee was never a first choice for the job, declined to comment on any communications that Trump team may have had with Russia on the subject. I don't know that I'd be stirring the uh, Romney nest. Yeah. I like the quote there. The White House said they were not going to comment on a Russia subject. Yeah. The Romney nest. Are you talking about his hair? No. Okay. Uh, it, it is b- great hair. It is great hair. And so now, so they they had hunt, they brought Huntsman in. 
No, this is for Secretary of State, not for the ambassador. Oh, not for the ambassador. Darn it. Okay. They brought in the oil guy. The oil guy. They brought in, yeah. it's oil. 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 However they say it in the Texas Times there. A majority of Americans have little to no faith that the Trump administration will stop foreign governments from interfering in November's midterm elections, according to a new poll. It's a survey monkey poll, my oh, favorite yeah. kind. <laughs> Republicans overwhelmingly trust the administration, uh, but independents, 63% don't trust, and Democrats don't by large margins. Another number to pay attention to is 80% of those polled blame tech companies for not doing more to keep their platform safe. It's the tech revolt that's happening. Oh, yeah. Tech revolt. People are like, ooh, those people out there in California driving their expensive cars, like good them, weather. Them Teslas. All they do is go to lunch all day. <laughs> wow. So it says Americans want action. 66% of those polls say tech companies like Facebook, Google, and Twitter have a majority, a major responsibility to stop foreign interference in the election. 63% say... The same for federal government. Last night, yeah, uh, I forget the guy's name, but last week they announced the guy that's going to run the re-election effort yeah. for President Trump. That guy was interviewed on 60 Minutes. He said, now we've had people on saying, telling us that Facebook had people embedded in the Trump campaign. Right. They offered it to the Hillary Clinton campaign. They declined because they said they had their own people. We like, Yeah, I think we already own Facebook. Right. So they have their own people. The Trump campaign brought employees of Facebook in to embed, they called yes. it. They worked in there. Basically, yeah. they were dealing with, okay, we want to make a sale. Walk across the hallway. We want to sell. They make it happen right now. Yeah. Those people were Republicans okay. politically. Yeah. Facebook, their department for this, you know, liaison to campaigns, they have Republicans and they have Democrats, people who are declared in the company, both sides wow. that go to the campaigns. That's what the guy said on 60 Minutes last night. That's Facebook said it's, it's it's not partisan, it's just business. Oh, no, but they finally got partisanship pe- there. And the, and the Trump campaign requested they want people that believe in what Trump's doing from Facebook yeah, to you gotta, Yeah, that, maybe that's it. Because. If he lost miserably, they would come back and say, hey, you embedded some Democrat. But that was just another new piece that has rolled out. By the way, dossiers, dossiers. It's dossiers? Plural. Oh, yeah. that's really disappointing. And I was hoping dossium, yeah. dossium ad nautum, <laughs> stuff like that. So now there's like 50 dossiers out Ad nauseum. Uh, Donald Trump, I, I think we may, I may have figured out what's going on. What? Some, there's some reports saying that Trump made his trade... Announcement of the tariffs, yeah, because he was upset. They're calling him unglued, unhinged, just upset at all the events of last week. You had Hope Hicks, really, yeah, stepping out. You have the stuff with Kushner. All this stuff's coming out. His headlines are not good. Well, this is probably the underlying reason for it all. Donald Trump has traded cheeseburgers for salads in the presidential diet. At least for some of the time, the president, whose trademark campaign trail dinner consisted of two Big Macs. Two filet fish sandwiches and a chocolate milkshake. It is cutting down back, uh, cutting back on doctor's orders to drop a few pounds, according to three people familiar with the matter. Less red meat, more fish. One person said it's been two weeks since he saw the president eat a hamburger. Wow. So he's got that. He's got he's angry. If you remember, he was bored anger. He had his uh, his uh, presidential physical in January. He was borderline obese. If he was one more pound, he would have been labeled according to the bmi as obese i hate Hmm. the bmi so uh they said the uh 
they, they pushed health food choices throughout the West Wing. This is going throughout the entire building. They're trying right. to get everyone to eat because apparently if there's a hamburger somewhere in the building, he's going to find it. Uh, <laughs> he's hangry. Trump so far has embraced the new regime, uh, a regiment giving AIDS the impression he feels like he's thriving on his new diet. Still, he's allowing himself indulgences. He ate bacon at breakfast one day last week, it says. Oh, wow. Mm. So, yeah, I think, I think he's making decisions while being hangry. No, food, I've had... I don't know if I want to bring this up, but my wife went to Costco and we bought poppy seed muffins. Okay. And I've had a hangover all weekend. Right. Well, because I don't those, know why. those things are si- the size of a football. Well, that too. But I don't know if it's just the carbs or if it's the poppy seeds. Could be the poppy it's seeds. It's the seeds. By the way, we have our uh, mandatory drug test today. Yeah, poppy uh, seeds are known to. Brother. Cause false positives, right? Well, yeah, it's that darn opium. And so I'm, I don't know, I just had a hard time staying in the lines driving here today. <laughs> well, that's because they wander half the <laughs> and way. And I was yeah. eating a muffin. So I just think maybe the president has this added stress of being hangry. That's interesting. He's, maybe that does explain a lot. I don't know. Because he seems to be making a bunch of decisions and his mm-hmm. staff's like, ah, oh, really? Not Pope again. Hope Hicks is gone. Right. So, I mean, she was the one that would probably sneak him in a little bit Mickey D's. Yeah. Mm. By the way, they had a Hope Hicks joke at the Oscars last night. Oh, I liked did. yours better, though. Yeah, what was mine? I don't remember. It. Well, you well, I liked the first oh, one. The, you, then you did the same one like ten times. It got less funny. Did you notice that? Yeah. Every mm. time I did it. That's, a, that's, a, that's a trend Yeah, with some of the jokes that you have. Jokes are really <laughs> funny the first time. Finally, the Silicon Valley, uh, we talked about how people are looking at Facebook and Twitter and going, oh, you messed up the election. It's your yeah. fault to protect America, even though they're international companies and blah, blah, blah. Well, other reasons why people may not like people in Silicon Valley or have a lower impression of them. Their elite status symbol, their what? latest symbol of elitism is chickens. Chickens. They're pampered birds, wear diapers, and have per, uh, personal chefs, but they lay the finest egg tech uh, eggs tech money can buy. This is from the Washington Post business section. In the Bay Area, egg-laying chickens are now a trendy, eco-conscious humble brag. Chicken owners approach their birds as any sa- savvy venture capitalist might by throwing lots of money at a promising flock, spending as much as two or twenty thousand dollars for high-tech coops. That's why my sister, who lives in the Bay Area, said one of her favorite things are chickens. By charting their productivity number and color of eggs, and by finding new ways to optimize their birds' happiness as well as their own, while the rest of the nation spends $15 on an ordinary chicken at their local feed store, Silicon Valley residents might spend more than $350 for the heritage breeds, (laughs) which they are using. A designation for rare, non-industrial birds with genetic lines that can be traced back generations. They are selecting for... Queen Victoria's chickens! They are selecting for desirable personality traits, such as being affectionate and calm. The lap chickens that are gentle enough for a child to cuddle. I draw the line at dressing the chicken. I mean, when I'm walking uh, my chicken on a leash, I yeah. don't like the looks that I get when they see the clothes on it. They're I all... like stuffing, <laughs> and I like it deep fried. Notice I said chicken. I, I do not name my chickens. They're also uh, judging on rarity, beauty, and the ability to produce highly coveted colored eggs. We're talking about chickens, right? Yes. It all, it all happens in cutting-edge <laughs> coops with exorbitant uh, veterinarian bills and a steady diet of organic salmon. Watermelon and steak. These mm. are chickens. They're feeding chickens watermelon. See, I have a sister that raises chickens here in Utah, just in her backyard until the dog gets one. Right. Yeah. And then I have another sister that would pay $350 for one. 
heritage. And breed. I'm telling you, if we had a family dinner, it would turn into a knockdown drag out. Just go to Harmon's. I mean, those are pricey, but they're not $350. They feed, wow. uh, they probably feed them quinoa. Oh, boy. A little kale. Ah. Yeah. Maybe that's the way to do it. Instead of eating kale directly, feed it to the chickens, and then we just eat Ooh, the chickens. But have you ever had a hand-fed chicken that was fed only kale and quinoa? Quinoa? No. Oh, yummy. Really? Super good. Couscous? Mm-hmm. You want the air-chilled chickens, any more, too. Any more pretentious grains we can name? Um, no. Okay. Did you say couscous already? I just said it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought he said Coos cruise. I thought it was a cruise with where you could get all the coos you could eat. <laughs> no, maybe not. Um, wow, what I mean again. That's why it's a little hard sometimes. I think to watch Hollywood. Yeah, sit and spend three and a half hours celebrating itself, and it, then have a bunch of political conversations. It's why, on average, if you look at the ratings versus population of the country, two hundred ninety-one million people just don't. So, wow! Just just putting it in perspective. Okay. So, aside from politics and all the Me Too and the women in Hollywood, I mean, I uh, I think those are all great movements. It's just I thought we were celebrating the movies. Well, that's the thing. Actually, another big theme of the night was thanking. They several times they thanked the people that go to see the movies, which of course nobody went to see any of these films that were nominated. And that was another big part of the jokes was. While we had our break, Black Panther made another forty-eight million dollars. <laughs> did, and they kind of did That's a. Pretty funny. They kind of did a sequel to to last year's uh, gag, where they brought people in on yeah. a tour, and you got to see all the celebrities get really uncomfortable. This time, they had people at a screening of. Uh, a wrinkle in time, yep. and he rounded up a bunch of celebrities in the room who volunteered this time, and he took them over, and they did like hot dog shooters and handed out candy, and <laughs> that was yeah. fun. It's I think that's more fun, honestly. It's kind of like Ellen's show where they yeah. just surprise you with something. That I think would be a, actually a lot better show if all they did is got rid of all the awards, just hand those out behind the scenes. Well, there's like three that people care about, right? Four awards, basically. Yeah, best documentary. No. Best picture, actress, best, actor, best cinematography. documentary, short subject. Uh, uh, cinematography was a big win. The people. There were a couple of guys that were really old that won Oscars, and everybody was ecstatic. Really? So there, everybody was represented. That. The old people, the people of color, people of short people, pe- for kids all who, the shorts, kids who climb on rocks. What was that one? You know, fat kids, skinny kids. Kids who climb on rocks. Anyway, I don't have any. Just that wasn't me. That was Jeff Simpson. If you're having trouble differentiating between the voices. And did you know that jet skis are $18,000? Yes, I did. I cannot believe that. I may buy one. That's why you rent them. Yeah. They also break a lot. um, Wow. What a day. I also started watching Justice League. No. We all fell asleep. Hmm. Oh, it was it was a great start though, great start. <laughs> Literally, Literally awesome. we, uh, four of us fell asleep during Justice. Well, League. When did you start watching it? Uh, about five o'clock yesterday. Five o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, and I, I had only had two poppy seed muffins. What what did you do? I mean, it's kind of a lazy Sunday type of thing. 
Yeah, but okay. I wouldn't. I don't. You don't need to cast aspersions. No, I'm just saying. You know, you, you maybe you weren't adequately prepared for the excitement, and you were just you know fatigued from a, a weekend. And I woke up. Do you normally nap on a Sunday? Uh, no, because I usually get to sleep in. Ah, but you didn't mm. get to sleep in. I did get to sleep in, but then I think I you know poppied up. Oh, okay. But then I woke up to Guardians of the Justice League, and um, yeah. Hmm? There's some Aquaman now. Yeah, and he's got a movie coming out. Where in did December. he come from? Aquaman. Are you talking about the creature from The Shape of Water? No, Aquaman came That's from another one. Yeah. Oh, okay. From Atlantis. Yeah, That's where he came. I from. didn't know anything about that. He hangs, guy. He hangs out in Norway, saving yeah. fishermen that tip over in their boats. He jumps in the water backwards. Well, yeah. It's kind of what? I know. He's really good at swimming. It's a long. It's a long, long story. He doesn't hey. talk to fish. He yeah. tells them what to do. And he doesn't care if the world ends. And the Yeah, he's fine. He's going to be in the water. I thought he was going to be the envi- environmentally friendly guy. You'll see. He'll change. Okay. It's, it's an evolution. <sighs> it's, that's why I fell asleep. It's just too much to memorize. So much ahead, folks. We're going to be talking about uh, economics, politics, theologies of, uh, of global relations. This is the Matt Townsend Show. is overrun with constant economic and political uh, stress and conflict. Often experts provide solutions to these problems on a quantitative formula-based outcome. However, a few months ago, I interviewed Professor Marsha Pauley, and she argued that in order to begin solving some of the problems that we need to, uh, and we're going to have to have better understanding of how the world is actually organized and set up. In her book, Commonwealth and Covenant, Economics, Politics, and Theologies of Rationality, she outlines the relationship between socioeconomic problems and the trend of individualism. I began the interview by asking her to expound upon the purpose of uh, her writing her book. Commonwealth and Covenant is not about partisan politics. It's about understanding the way we human beings are and the context with each other and the world that we're in in order to frame our economic and political policies and our voting patterns. But in order to do that, we have to understand something like the basic setup. And I found in researching Commonwealth and Covenant that it's not so much that we make a covenant with each other, is that we're born into it as a matter of biology, as a matter of physics, as a matter of the way we are. We're individual persons, individual entities with singular talents and abilities. We're different and separate from each other in that way. But we become who we are through layers of relationships with each other. Mm. That that's a, that it really in a way it's it's beautiful. It's it's like yeah, it's like you're born into a family um and you you have a responsibility to one another um and I, I guess part of your point is we need to look at each other as that as members of almost a family. I think our families include again, as a matter of biology, physics, and our setup, our families include those near 
and those at some distance for ourselves. Our families extend out. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, of course, think of a young child who is affected by interactions with the parents, caregivers, siblings, community. But the conditions that all those adults live in are affected by people not so near. The education that the parents, siblings, and the child have access to are determined often by people not so close. The economic opportunities, the nutrition, the health care, the stress that a family is under due to health or economic duress, all these things are affected um, like in waves, if you plunk a pebble into a lake, you'll see waves going out. So our interconnectedness begins with those near, but immediately extends out. And it's just that that we need to take into account when we set up our economic and political policies. If we're interested in human flourishing, we have to take account of our setup, our individuality amidst our contexts and our relationships. Hmm. Is there something... To understand how to build policies that will promote human flourishing. Is there something about economics and political, you know, policy making um, and governing that, that makes us maybe forget this commonality? Not per se. Government, of, of course, to begin with, democratic government I'm speaking of, begins with the premise of the covenant. In the 16th century, the uh, thinkers in, uh, in Europe who were developing the concept of the fertus, of the federal, the basis for our federal government, were drawing on covenantal theology as their basis, the idea that we are separate and we even may form groups that are separate from other groups. Nonetheless, we flourish by cooperative interaction and relationship amongst persons and amongst groups. And our idea of federalism, our system of government, is born in this religious theological principle of distinct beings, distinct groups, who acknowledge their reciprocal impact on each other and therefore take each other into account in moving forward. Hmm. It's a, It really is. You call that, I guess, it comes from relational theologies, um, which is which is a parallel of God and and us. I, I, and I'll have you explain that to us. Um, and yet, it seems like too we come down here and we are a Judeo Christian ethic in the United States. It seems, and yet we still are so partisan. Help me understand kind of the uh, relational theology concept and how it plays out or doesn't play out in our partisanship. Yeah, we have a, a foundational setup, for lack of a better word. Some call it the way we've been created uh, to be. And sometimes we mess it up. But let's uh, talk a little bit about what that is to begin with. Um, 
We, very basically, we are each, as I mentioned, different, differentiated people, but come to be who we are through our layers of interaction. Now, science has been saying this for the last 50 or 60 years, but our faith traditions have been saying this for the last few thousand years. So one could think that our sciences are finally catching up to our theologies. And I'll explain how it sounds in theological terms. Okay. And I want to take a moment to, to tell your listeners that some people think of theological principles as an illuminating metaphor. Others think of it as the Word of God. But in both cases, we have much to learn from the principles that, I'm gonna, that we're going to talk about together now. Uh, they begin with the idea that, um, that uh, there's something, whatever, makes everything and any particular thing. There could be nothing. The universe could be one spectacular blob, <laughs> but it's not. It's full of distinct entities and specific distinct entities. And whatever is the reason for all of that, there's being something rather than nothing and the particular things that there are. Some people call that God. And we notice that any particular person is very different from whatever the foundational source of existence is. That is infinite, we're finite, that's not material, we are material people in our bodies. We're radically different from whatever the cause or reason or structure for all existence is. But on the other hand, we have to have something of the source of existence in us. I'm speaking metaphorically, in us. Yeah. In order to exist at all, we have to have something of the source and structure of existence in order to exist. So this, this means at very bottom that we are both very different from the source of what makes everything. But on the other hand, we're intimately related to the source of what makes everything because it's in us in order to exist. Existence itself is a matter of difference, differentiation, and profound foundational relation. That's the universe we live in. That's the system or the setup we're in. Distinct, differentiated entities within profound relation in order to continue to exist. That's what people are. We are different and distinct and in profound, intimate relation with other people and our environmental surroundings in order to exist. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian and philosopher called this the being intimate with God, God being intimate in each of us. Mm. And yet, on the other hand, biologists say the same thing, that our structure of human existence is a matter of um, relating to others near and far, in order to develop our basic brain functioning, our in intellectual development, our emotional development, and our moral development. 
Wow. So really, uh, let me just give it the layman's view, and you correct me, Marcia. Sorry about that. No, this is because you're brilliant. And um, so, so if whether you believe in a god, um, I'll, I'll do it with God. But it could be just the higher power, a higher source, the governing, the the all being energy, whatever we want to call it. We all are different, but we possess a part of that goodness, that God, that being, that power, that energy is one way to look at this, which would be why we all have to look at each other with some respect and recognize that we are all in relation to each other because we are all in relation to that God or higher power. But biologists say virtually the exact same thing because even though we're all so distinct and different, we all still possess the same DNA or DNA codes, genetics uh, that are flowing through all of us, which make us one, um, and why we are all so you know needed to maintain and watch out for each other. And physicists say very similar things. So, is that the point that even however you look at it, if you look at it through pure theology or religion, let's say, or through biology, we are distinct, different beings, yet one. Sounds right to me. Science is finally catching up with theology. Theology has been teaching this this theology of relationality forever, and um, you and now all of a sudden evolutionary biology is starting to show how hyper cooperative we are, um, and and even I guess uh, physics is now post quantum physics is now starting to see that connectivity as well. You were talking about the fact that. In biology, for example, uh, we have to talk about, I think you called it welcoming relations, where a child is born and we need to, we have this special uh, rule or or responsibility to to care and to to take care of the child and, and help it learn the social skills. The welcoming relations I was referring to are necessary for development. They're necessary for physical, neurochemical, brain development, without which the child is impaired and is impaired um, especially in their ability to feel empathy, to see the long term, to be able to compare past and future, and to be able to make moral decisions. Mm. Let me give you some ideas about what the biologists are saying, and then we can switch over to physics. Evolutionary biologist Donald Pfaff, for example, says that we are not only set up for relationship but wired for goodwill as a matter of evolution. And Edwin Fruvald calls this reciprocal altruism, which even precedes our formal institutions and again appears to be hardwired. Hmm. And there's an evolutionary reason for this. Let's say you have two groups. Um, they're looking at some tasty bison to um, kill off in our hunter-gatherer stage. Hunting and gathering is 95% of human evolution. If these two groups go to war against each other, they kill off a lot of each other, they reduce their resources, and there's less of a chance anybody's going to get that bison to survive. But if they cooperate, then they get the bison and everybody eats. Uh, and biologists are finding the same thing with um, with child rearing. The more cooperative child rearing uh, there is, the more chances that offspring will survive. Hmm. And at the level of biology, we shouldn't be surprised because this 
relational dependence exists in physics. Um, all, all our subatomic particles are distinct particles, to be sure, but their trajectories are formed in relation to the tra- trajectories of other subatomic particles. Uh, for instance, here's um, physicist Carlo Rovelli. All things are continually interacting with one another, and in doing so, each bears the traces of that with which it has interacted. In this sense, all things continually exchange information about one another. Mm. That which makes us specifically human does not signify our separation from nature. It is part of that nature. It's a form that nation has taken here on this planet. In the infinite play of combinations through the, here's the point, reciprocal influencing and exchanging. Wow. That's at a subatomic level. That's at the subatomic level. And we shouldn't therefore be surprised that at the biological level and at the human developmental level, we are also distinct, but we don't get to be anybody except through our relations. Mm. You asked me a a question a little while ago. Um, so how come we're so partisan? Right. Um, it's interesting that um, all of the great faith traditions take uh, this into account, um, noticing when we have free will, we sometimes do make the decisions um, out of fear, often, to focus on me and mind as a protection mechanism. The problem with that is that in the short term and the long term, that's not very productive, precisely because we're set up for relationality. Right. There are many stresses in history, um, not only scarcity, but I would say more the fear of scarcity, the anticipation or fear that somebody out there is going to take what you have. And this fearful anticipation often promotes a defensive response that leads to aggression against others. And, and yet, it doesn't work out very well for us. It works out into individuals fighting each other or groups fighting each other or what the great 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes called the war of all against all, mm. which he noted comes from fear not more than anything else. And if you, in a fearful mode, start thinking of yourself excessively, not just yourself in context with others, but only yourself, me and mine, my profits, my firm, my political party, me, 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 then you're also apt to think that the world works that way, that others are doing the same, and you have to protect yourself from their chicanery and their anticipated attacks against you. And you get a cycle of attacks, and it's a downward spiral, because we flourish when we function cooperatively and taking the other into regard understanding our reciprocal impact and reciprocal responsibility. Mm. One, that this, uh, Professor Pally, is one of the reasons 
that I think uh, evolutionarily – I mean that why I think of my God and how that helps me because um, I, I look at it like um, I need – I can worry that someone else might take it or I could exercise and have fear or I could exercise faith in a higher power that is guiding me to not have everything in the world, but to become what I want or need to become. Um, So so I guess my faith might help me through my fear. But um, we only have a few more minutes and I've got to ask you this. So what does all of this have to do with when we walk into the ballot box? What criteria do we use to pick a policy or a president? I think we need to use the criteria that will lead to the long-term flourishing of people on, on the earth. Yeah. That means people in their contexts. That's the basic framework. And that's the basic premise of Commonwealth and, and Covenant. We have to make our political choices based on uh, the universe that we live in and, and the condition of, of our human nature. So uh, moving away from that fear-based perspective, we should recognize that we will all do a lot better if we go with the grain of the setup, so to speak, go with the grain, if you believe in God, then of our created setup. Mm-hmm. Go with the grain of the way human beings and the universe is organized. And we're organized for reciprocal cooperation and taking that into account. Joel Hunter, the Reverend Joel Hunter, um, put it beautifully. He talks about asking yourself, when you think you're in a fearful attack situation, why is the other side for the other side? I'm going to repeat that. Ask yourself why the other side is for the other side. And now try to take that into consideration. All sides have to take that into consideration when you negotiate solutions, when you develop economic policy, educational policy, political policy. And we need to be voting for people who appreciate that because that's our foundational setup. That's beautiful, and it, and and basic, right? I mean, it's just go go with the grain of how we were, or how we've been created. I mean, genetics are teaching us, uh, theology is teaching us, and uh, Professor Marcia Pally, you're teaching us. Thank you so much for your insight. Oh, thank you so much for having me on and for asking me such great questions. Thank I really you. enjoyed this. Thank you. You bet. Again, the name of the book, Commonwealth and Covenant, Economics, Politics, and Theologies of Rela- Relationality. Relationality. you think as a relationship coach I'd be able to say that word. Professor Marsha Pally, again, is the author of that book. Uh, profound. Profound insight. Um, Genetics, physics, theology, folks, they're telling us that we are one, yet distinct, and yet we might not always act that way because our fear creeps in and and starts to take over. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, hoping here on the show to help you see the good in the world, and the good is right next to you and across the country and across the world.
Welcome back, folks. Now, if you live anywhere in the United States, which I'm sure most of you do, then you've got to be thinking to yourself, hey, I probably live in the best state ever. Well, here to help us know what is the officially best state, according to U.S. News and World Report, Apparently, they're the, they're the authority. They're the authority on whether your state is worth living in. They do the research. They bring the data. And then everyone complains because yeah, they feel like they're is, misrepresented. This is not right. So uh, the number one state, we were talking about it briefly. Any more guesses? You, you guessed so North I'm, Carolina, Boston, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, I'm, I mean, it's always in the top Massachusetts of Massachusetts is on eight. They are number one for education. Yeah. North Carolina, I would go with. Not on the list. Not on the top ten. Wow. Um, Utah? They're number three. What? Yeah. I would think that I, I was thinking they'd be higher. Three. Okay. So, but I'm thinking of where all the jobs and businesses are going. Yeah. And I said Texas, but you said they're not on the not list. On the top, top 10. 10. Hmm. hmm. So, this state is. Oh, no, oh, oh. Washington State. Uh, no. Ah. They're number six. Ooh. The, the state that's number one is number one in infrastructure, number three in healthcare. Okay. Number five in education. Four in opportunity. And, it's going to uh, be yeah. California. No, they're not even on the list. <laughs> Who else? Connecticut. No. Atlanta, Georgia. Let's see. Is Georgia here? No. Iowa. I was going to say Iowa. Really? Oh, yeah. Come on. And maybe better known for its corn. Caucuses yeah. and creative writing programs. And food on a stick. Right, but the Hawkeye State also leads the nation in efforts to bring ultra fast internet access to every city, block, and every That's rural cool. acre. So, not even just the cities, they're trying to get it for the entire you state. You need it, but you need it for every rural acre because you've got your tractors out there, <laughs> you've got your equipment right. running your farm. So, the number one ranking in the infrastructure category and the broad access uh, med- metric within that came as a pleasant surprise to That's the great for Iowa. guy running the Iowa State broadband. What's, what's yes. number two? Number two in the rankings. I'll have to look again. That's interesting, though. Iowa, number one. Yep. Utah, number three. Minnesota. Minnesota, Whoa. number two. So, hey, you big cities <laughs> and states. There was an Iowa joke at the Oscars last night, too. There was? Kumail Ninjani, who was nominated for Best Original Screenplay for The Big Sick, got up there and said, I'm from Pakistan and Iowa, two places that people in, Ho- in uh, Hollywood cannot find on a map <laughs> yeah we can't figure it out that's great so the way they were they did the rankings they combined uh rankings in healthcare. i'll just read them here it says healthcare, education economy opportunity infrastructure hmm. and there's one that's cut in half that i can't read here uh crime and corrections hmm. yeah crime and corrections uh fiscal stability and quality of life quality of life is a new metric they added this year okay so they're judging that by uh so so th- these are three states this is really interesting I think because we don't think of these states that's why like I was conceiving oh it's obviously going to go to a big state Massachusetts some big right but you know what well, that's see, great the biggest state the flyover states are getting some attention so now. It's, number 1 is Iowa 2 Minnesota 3 Utah North Dakota New Hampshire Washington Nebraska Massachusetts so the biggest state would be Biggest city would be yeah. Boston in that probably, and uh, so that's number eight before you get the biggest uh, biggest city involved. So yeah, they have uh, now opportunity in Utah is a thirty five. Yeah, really. 
Mm. Apparently, Utah needs some more opportunity. Yeah. Whatever that means. Aren't things entail. kind of exploding here? Yeah. Well, that's what they want to. Well, the problem is the people that tell you that are the people whose job kind of depends on promoting it. I guess. So you kind of you're looking at. But yeah, is it really? But I'm on not New sure. York, I mean, on the on the U.S. World and News Report World Report. Yeah. There you they, go. You got um, all the words in. They're <laughs> they're always saying we're like in the top three in right. job growth, job innovation. Now I would I would question. What is their subscription rate in the state? Are they trying to keep that up by yeah. just kind of buttering up? But again, their, that's their audience. That's the cynic in you, <laughs> right? This is yeah. But that's okay. That's good news. So if you're a middle, if you're a flyover state, hey, you've got hope, according to U.S. News and World Report. That's what they're saying. And all you other big coastal cities, you got to start paying attention. Yeah, because there will be a day in the future that you will be eating. Food from the Iowa State Fair, because mm. they're they're going they're going to eat you. But up. It's, it's easy; it's just stuff on a stick. It's so good. I just can't. I love. That's why I love. Every four years, we get a new Iowa State Fair update because all the politicians are there and everything's on a stick. You love it. I mean, you're chewing on your pen right now. Uh, I'm actually chewing on your pen. So the article, uh. it goes on, it says, Iowa's number one in terms of the gradua- graduation rate for public high schools, number three for graduation rate for four-year public colleges. That's great. Those scores help the state rank number five for education overall. It's number 19 for tuition fees and number 32 for low debt at graduation for in-state students after a four-year Iowa's is. doing a great job. Minnesota's doing a great job. Utah, who's fourth? Now we got to look. You keep making me – I keep switching yeah, the pages I thought around. you just learned thought the we'd content. moved on from yeah. that. Fourth is North Dakota. Yeah. But North Dakota has, has a fuel uh, – an uh, uh, oil boom right yes, now. Yes, they are they? fracking <sighs> like crazy, as it's called. Yeah. It's called fracking. FLC, they call it. Fracking no. like crazy. Oh, that's good stuff. All right. Well, now you know where your state stands, folks. Uh, More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Monday to you. You're back at it. Isn't life great? Aren't you glad to be alive? <laughs> I don't know. That's funny to me. Hey, it's uh, it's Monday, which means it's time to cover the Academy Awards. Maybe you meant it's, it seemed to go on all uh, year. It's a good thing to be alive because we watched the film Get Out. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but the whole thing is, will this guy get out alive? And it was actually one of the, another gag uh, at the Academy Awards last night before Jimmy Kimmel presented the whole jet ski idea for the person with the shortest acceptance speech. He said, if your speech goes on too long this year, don't worry. We're not going to have the band play you off, but we will have this and a character from the film Get Out who shouts the famous line, get out, comes out in costume and says, get out, get out, get out. Wow. It was kind of funny. That would be terrifying. Yeah. That uh, the Academy Awards last night, um, if you got to see it, well, here's the deal. If you watched TV at all last night, there's a pretty good chance you would have tuned in at some point because it was on for four hours. (laughs) I watched a basketball game. 
Wow. You did? Yeah. Yeah, 76ers, Milwaukee. There was a good matchup there, some players. But Terry, there. Marvel was well represented at the Oscars last night. Sure. I mean, there was one nomination, yeah. but there were there were plenty of references to Marvel movies and specifically Black Panther. Great. Shouldn't they shouldn't they have an award for the for the movie that actually makes the most money? No, because that's that's not necessarily the movie that needs an award. I mean, Transformers makes a lot of money, but they're horrible movies. Yeah, but there's a lot of movies too that were out that nobody saw. Yes. Absolutely. So, I mean, again, what they ought to do probably then is if there's movies that nobody saw, it's probably less entertaining to the TV world. What hmm. are they judging, though? Are they judging the art or are they judging the entertainment? Factor? That's a great question. Because sometimes that it's... really is, because sometimes you don't know. Yeah. Or are they just judging the political statement made by said movie? Hmm. Because some movies are nobody saw, but they made an incredible. Statement. Well, no. Oh, pe- yeah? The people that vote got their screener DVDs in the mail, yeah, and they, they yeah. watch those. Yeah, so those 3,000. digital download, whatever, yeah. whatever. Another joke from the Academy Awards had to do with screeners. They were talking a little bit about Harvey Weinstein, and he said that he was kicked out of the Academy. And he said, just to give you some perspective, the only other person that's been kicked out of the Academy, it happened in 2004, is a character actor who got busted for giving out a screener copy to a neighbor. So he's like... There's Harvey Weinstein, and there's this guy who gave out a copy of Seabiscuit. Got kicked out of the Academy. Oh, man. How, how would you like to be that guy? You go down in, in history as the guy that gave the Seabiscuit <laughs> DVD out. It says right on it, do not hand this out. I mean, That's true. Keep it. You're not allowed to hand this out this to anybody. This is yours. So like I said, plenty of Marvel yeah. and Black Panther references, Wonder, Woman, uh, Wonder Woman references. Here's one of the Black Panther gags that Jimmy Kimmel had. Black Panther and Wonder Woman are, uh, were massive hits, which is almost miraculous because I remember a time when the major studios didn't believe a woman or a minority could open a superhero movie. And the reason I remember that time is because it was March of last year. (laughs) That's a good point. It's true. That's a great point. Well, so uh, overall, Jeff, as somebody who loves movies and can quote, probably far too many. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what do you think? I thought some of the gags were pretty funny. However, it was pretty bland in that there were really no surprises the whole night. Yeah. I was most worried that Coco might not win over The Greatest Showman, but it yeah. came out on top. Maybe a little bit of surprise that The Shape of Water won over three, billboard, three uh, billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. What is Missouri? The Shape of Water? Uh, I'm not a chemist or a waterist, <laughs> so I wouldn't hydrologist. know. Hydrologist. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so bland in that there were no surprises. Yeah. So bland. Yeah. I mean, when you have 50 other award shows throughout the year leading up to this, there really are no surprises no. anymore. So, I mean, are they losing their poll? Did they have? Did a lot of people watch the Oscars last night? They're saying the ratings so far are. Down from last year, which were down from the year before. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, then let's talk about something that maybe got a little bit more attention. Um, the uh, I, I just have to mention this because I saw it on a Facebook feed or something. The guy that dominated the NFL Combine had one hand. Did you see that guy? Really? Yes, I did. He's unbelievable. He's a linebacker that runs a four three eight forty. Florida University or Florida Central University, one of those. Unbelievable. When he played in, he played in one of the uh, the bigger bowl games. He dominated the game. 
he was the Did reason he? the other team's defense, the, the team's defense was any good. He was over there just knocking down passes, tackling people. But he has an arm, but no hand. Man, he's missing a hand. Shaquem Griffin. But yeah, he's he's like missing a hand, and then the, he he still locks himself into a. He has a prosthetic, yeah, and he that just he slides on. It has a little out. sort of bracket that he hooks over the bench bar, and he did twenty twenty reps two hundred twenty five. Yeah. For some reason, I thought you said he had a hand but no arm, and I thought, how does that work? Yeah. It's weird. It's just so in now, a box. Now the question: Will an NFL team draft a guy yeah. for defense that only has one hand? Yeah, they will. But he has shown that he is very good at the position he plays. Yeah, he's in. But Come on. NFL's weird. They look at things and go, wow, that's a liability. Come on. And then people slip no, in the draft. No, a liability are the guys that are getting arrested in the middle of your season. Well, there's that too. Hmm. You know, and the guys stuff. with two hands who don't play that position half as well as he does. That's right. But you know, And he's learned to compensate. He can pick up a ball on the run. He'll be fine. He did it in the bowl game. Yeah, he's fine. So that's really cool. Shaquem uh, Griffin, congratulations for killing it at the combine let's get to the rest of the headlines terry what else should we be paying attention to i have this pursuit to define what is and is not a millennial more information (gasps) came out over the weekend important news okay pew research we i bring a lot of their research in because it's kind of interesting Pew, Pew, P-U. P-U research. It's, it's P-E-W. <laughs> it's a, it's not the it's not the highly regarded Pew research. So Pew, uh, which tracks trends by generation, announced Friday that 1996 was the cutoff for being a millennial. 1996. Anyone born between 1981 and 1996, currently ages 22 to 37, will be classified as a millennial. When, when were you born, Jeff? When were you born, Jeffrey? (laughs) Apparently he's a millennial. Okay. And and those born in 1997 and after are post-millennials because they don't really have a name for that generation yet. That's the... Yeah. So officially, 1981... Through 1996. So this is like the Academy. What year were you like, born? Why do we have to listen to the Academy Awards to tell us what movie is good and what's not? Why do we have to listen to to Pew Research? Well, because they one of the great researching firms of the world. Come on. So who it, says who? Says who? Says Jim and Johnny Pew. <laughs> now they're just defining how they are going to list statistics. Yeah. This is what, when they talk about a yeah. millennial, this is what they've defined it as. So, well, so they, they would have researched that, and they've come up with the most conclusive right. decision and argument, which once again states I, that Jeffrey Liam Simpson is a millennial. I think go. they're being fair. I think they're saying, you can take or leave our research, but if you leave it, you're not an American. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So I <laughs> so just thought I'd lead off with that just so we define so now we terms. Know. Now we know for Wrong. Sure. Uh, other news, President Donald Trump's decision to unilaterally slap tariffs on imports in steel and aluminum that staggered the NAFTA uh, renegotiation efforts and threatens to derail talks were already politically and economically sensitive for all three countries, Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. Government officials and industry representatives gathered in Mexico City for the seventh negotiating round were sent scrambling when Trump announced plans to levy tariffs of 25% on steel, 10% on aluminum, to protect U.S. national security interests. Apparently hmm. Canada and Mexico are threats to our national security. Is what they just kind of defined there. Oh, Canada, boy. The Canadian government is very concerned as to how they're a threat to the U.S. national security. And I say, you look at their population, they're massing at the border. 
The vast yeah. majority of their populations right at the border. Right. What are they doing? I think they're they're telegraphing future <laughs> intent. Well, and Jeff would say, plus some of the best movies and comedians and entertainers come out of Canada. Mm. They're they're that slowly sapping the, the United States' ability to make movies. While negotiators have continued to meet, the tone has changed as Canadian and Mexican representatives try to figure out the impact on their countries and whether their leaders will retaliate if Trump doesn't backtrack. New this morning, President Trump appeared to say in a tweet, appeared, meaning he said it, to suggest Monday morning that uh, Mexico and Canada could be exempt from the steel and aluminum tariff if a new and fair NAFTA agreement is signed. Meaning... Get rid of the old one, guys. That benefits the United States and doesn't benefit them. Okay, so now we know what he's doing. He's trying to get a new one signed, so he's leveraging two of our closest allies. (laughs) It's all leverage. Okay. The Canadians. Are are there nicer people? No, there's not, eh? And they are our brother or our sister. They're America's hat. I don't like to look at it that way. Really? They're kind of there. They're humans. They're, They're north. incredibly nice, beautiful people. West there Virgi- are two pay more than our hat. <laughs> our well, comb over? They're our hair piece. Because we're uh, obese and bald. I'm sure they bad. don't like to hear it's that. It's getting bad. West Virginia's teacher and uh, school service personnel have been on strike since February 22nd. They said Saturday the strike will continue. The public schools will stay closed at least through today. Unions representing the teachers and school workers negotiated a 5% raise with Governor Jim Justice. But the state Senate voted to only approve a 4% raise. The state house already endorsed the 5% plan, and the teachers have pledged to stay on strike until the bills are reconciled at 5%. Both houses are controlled by Republican lawmakers who have generally agreed raises should happen while differing on how much the state government can actually afford. That, you know, raises are good. They should happen. Again, the schools are closed. All these kids have to be somewhere. Yeah. Parents have jobs. This is becoming stressful. This is becoming, and by the way, today we're going to be talking about how to not transfer your anxiety and stress to your children. One might be to just pass some of these things quickly. Some education funding, please. Uh, South Korean President Moon Jae is in uh, uh, has selected two high-ranking officials to lead a delegation of ten envoys to visit North Korea beginning today. This is crazy. The head of Seoul's National Security Council and South Korea's top intelligence official will stay in the North for two days and reportedly meet today with North Korean leader Kim Jong Un. And according to some reports, already have. yeah, they're doing it. They are the first South Korean officials to meet Kim since he took power following the death of his father six years ago. After the trip, the envoys will head to uh, Washington, D.C. to debrief U.S. allies on the encounter. The White House said after a phone call between uh, the president of South Korea and President Trump on Thursday that there is no daylight between Washington, the South, and North Korean policy. No daylight. But, I mean, this is a big deal. And you know what's really strange about it to me? Um, it's, it's being led by South Korea. Yes. I mean, nobody is more likely to be harmed by North Korea than South Korea. And South Korea is leading a lot of these discussions. It seems like the United States, we're a little more, I don't know, we're a little slow to want to be involved in this. And on the other side, uh, President Trump has taken this hardline stance and there's been a lot of progress. Yeah. So he kind of thinks like he's helping the situation in calling people names. And Well, I mean, that would make sense if fury. we were involved in any of it. So well, maybe yeah. behind the scenes we are involved. They're just not. Well, that's what the Secretary of State has said, and then the President said, don't bother, it's a waste of your time Yeah, to have back-channel negotiations. So we don't know if what's going on, what's continuing, 
but there is progress. They're meeting. It's great. We'll see great what news. happens. Keep it up. Uh, finally, a new study out of British Columbia. Is it from see? the Pew? More Canadian research. Yeah. But can you trust it? We'll see. Published in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology, a two-part study was designed to determine how looking at one's phone affects happiness. Uh-oh. In the first part, 300 participants were told to go out for a meal with friends or family. Half the group was told to put away their phones for the meal's duration since they'd respond to questions on paper later. The other half was told to expect a text message during the meal, so they should keep their devices on the table. The results showed a dip in pleasure among phone users who found themselves using their phones for 11% of the mealtime, just because they were on the table. They were fiddling with it. Yeah. The second part consisted of researchers texting questions to 100 participants five times a day for a week. Each text asked the participants about their emotional state and what they had been doing in the past 15 minutes. Those who had been engaged in a face-to-face interaction with someone else while simultaneously using their phone reported a greater sense of unhappiness than those who were face-to-face without a phone in hand. From the study discussion, the phone use also had indirect negative effects via distraction on others' well-being uh, outcomes also. In both studies, phone use predicted distraction, which in turn predicted greater boredom and worse overall mood. Wow. So stay away from your phone. Elizabeth Dunn, one of the study's co-authors, said that during the phone at the table, uh, having the phone at the table is contagious. People are more likely to do it when they see others doing the same. By putting your own phone away, you might be creating a positive domino effect amongst family and friends to put their phones away. Oh, Mm. and and then all of a sudden, one tips over, and then the next thing you know, everyone starts tipping over around the table. Right. Then they're all on the floor. Embarrassing. There you go. Uh, that happened last night to our family. We had just had a great discussion. People were about ready to leave. And then we had this weird phone moment where everybody went silent and went to their phones hmm. as if we were all looking to see what do we do next to say goodbye. <laughs> and it just froze. And for about two minutes, everyone was on their phone. Hmm. It was strange. Then I realized, oh, nope, it's the poppy seed. It's the poppy seed muffins. Is that what it was? Yeah. They're all doped up on mm-hmm. poppy seeds. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Well. Hey, uh, by the way, did you notice the nor'easter is pummeling? The is northeast. it still pummeling? It it did, and that's gonna. We have another one coming this week. Well, they do. Well, yeah, I'm talking we in general. We, we as in we the people. Gotcha. Of the United States of America, perfect in order union. to form yeah, a more perfect okay. storm alliance. I'm not sure justice, that's but... how that goes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, apparently, though, over from the last nor'easter, at least seven people were killed by falling trees. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, we don't even think about that where we are. We had a lot of snow this weekend. But I, what? I had eight inches at my house over the two storms. Right. And so um, – but they have trees falling. 200, 215,000 customers from Virginia to Massachusetts were without power. 75,000 on Monday morning are out of power in Massachusetts alone. Hmm. Train services have stopped. Homes are underwater. Crazy and freezing. So just know, we're, we're looking out for you uh, in your, with the Nor'easter. It's a big deal. Um, let's get uh, Jeffrey in on this. Jeff, uh, any other news we need to be paying attention to? 
Yeah, we've been talking a lot about the Oscars. Matthew McConaughey yeah. was one of the presenters last night. He, that just seemed like a reading for him. He just kind of came yeah. in and just read. Well, and my it's interesting because over the weekend I saw a Carl's Jr. commercial and there's a new voice at the end. And we're like, wait a minute. Matthew McConaughey is now a spokesman for Carl's Jr.? Is he? So this is Scott Carl's Jr. He had the beef campaign. He had uh, the, the car. How, the do you, I know, how do you go from Lincoln to yeah. Carl's Jr.? It seems like a completely different audience. It's all about money. Anyway, we're getting off topic here because we noticed during the Oscars that there was a lack of that that signature Matthew McConaughey whistle yeah. that he seems to have with all his S's, you know? Yes. So my wife was wondering, did they do? Did he fix his teeth or something? Well, he's also in the news. Uh, apparently, there was a, uh, a car robbery no. involving... Matthew McConaughey. Is he Matthew McConaughey? <laughs> was was, that, like, was that your like, Matthew McConaughey? No, I was trying to get a, whist, a, lif, a whistle. That was like Donald see, Trump see, doing. There it is. It was like Donald Trump doing Matthew McConaughey. The United States of America. So, okay, Matthew McConaughey yeah. did not steal a car. Let me make that clear. Okay, good. But listen to this. What a suspected car thief tried to pass himself off. As movie star Matthew McConaughey, when Pennsylvania police found him <laughs> Sunday, I'm going to show you a picture. Now, our listeners won't be able to see this picture, but if you're listening, just type in uh, Troy Miller, Matthew McConaughey, and this is the picture that will pop up. And Dr. Matt, you tell me if you think this guy <laughs> looks even remotely like McC- Matthew McConaughey. You know what? He kind of does um, past – if he went on like a – 50-day fast, and he was tased. <laughs> to me, okay, the first thought I had when I saw this picture was, that looks more like Gene Wilder it than Matthew totally McConaughey. Does. And then I thought, actually, take away the hair, and you've got Ed Harris. Yeah, You know what? That's exactly right. Ed if he Harris. were bald, he could go to the moon. Yes. Actually, Ed Harris didn't go to the moon in the film Apollo 13. But he helped those who were trying to get home from the moon, who also didn't actually land on the That's moon, point. get home. He just stayed in his white shirt. So, yeah, um, officers got a call from a suspicious person prowling outside of a home and ringing the doorbell. It's McConaughey. When, uh, <laughs> that's just horrible. When they got there, they allegedly found 46-year-old Troy Miller sitting in the resident's car. When asked for identification, Miller would only tell officers he was the 48-year-old Oscar winner, Matthew McConaughey. Despite a rough resemblance, officers weren't fooled. Police arrested. <laughs> he was like, yeah, because he's presenting at the Oscars yeah. right now. Actually, that was not at the same time. But police arrested Miller on charges of attempted theft of a motor vehicle, false identification to law enforcement authorities, and loyalty and prowling at night. How do you prove attempted theft? Because, I mean, yeah. how do you know he was going to try to steal it? Just because he was sitting in the car. Maybe he was just trying to get warm. Well, was the car running? I don't know. That wasn't specified in the story. Um, one of the things, though, just because you've taken a Facebook test that says, which movie star are you more most like? <laughs> Who's your doppelganger? Just because you've done that doesn't mean you actually look like the person. So I'm curious to know. I mean, I don't even think we need to really ask this question because yeah. you get told a lot that there's a resemblance to Steve Carell. Uh-huh. Danny DeVito. I oof, I, uh, I think you're a mix between Steve Carell and yeah. Andy Richter. Yeah. 
you sound more like Steve Carell, but you look like a mix between Steve Carell and Andy I, Richter. I don't see the Andy Richter thing. Really? I mean, I, I, I know where you're going with that. I'm not saying because no. of like body weight or anything like that. I'm just saying in the face. I, I seem to have more. Yeah. Who is my doppelganger? Who would you say? I'll tell you who I've gotten throughout my life. Uh, Homer Simpson? No. Oh. Who have you got? Who? Oh, I know who. Who? The guy on um, the so- the show where they sing songs. The show where they sing? Um, How dare you, sir? One of the... James oh. Corden? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> um, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Where they... They they're acapella singers and they go head to head. One of the lead singers and the male ver the male acapella group. Oh, Pentatonics? No, uh, I don't know who you're talking about. But I've gotten who? when I was younger, it was more like I would get Martin Short. But yeah. these days, I seem to be getting Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon. Not even close. Really? No. Um, the guy, <laughs> there, there's a, there's a show. You'll figure it we'll out. Take a we break. can talk when about it. When we come back from the break, I'll tell you who it is. But you're like one of the lead singers of the acapella group. There's the guys against the girls and they sing. In Pitch Perfect? Pitch Perfect. You think I look like the, the- male... Okay, I'll look. I think I know who you're talking yeah, about. That's who you uh, I look more like Jimmy Fallon than this guy looks like Matthew McConaughey, though, probably. You actually look more like Matthew McConaughey <laughs> than that guy. Absolutely. Okay, up, up next, we're going to be talking about how to keep from transferring your anxiety to your child. You know, we don't have to pass it on, folks. Interesting guest up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you suffer from anxiety or just worry and you stress a lot, then, man, buckle in, folks, because we've got a great guest for you coming up uh, right now. Dr. Reed Wilson has been on the show before. He's one of the foremost experts on anxiety and how to stop it, and he's written many books. In fact, the book we're talking about today is Stopping the Noise in Your Head, The New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry. Dr. Reed Wilson, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, glad to be here, Matt. This, to me, man, I'm telling you, I'm so glad you're back. Because I have seen over and over, even since the last time we met and your last book, Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, um, that we talked about, there's more and more of a need for help with anxiety. What do you think is going on? Why are so many people so anxious and, and stressed today? Well, we're talking about 40 million people, so it's a lot. Anxiety disorders are the number one disorder in the country. You know, we, we, we got a lot more tasks on our plate now than we used to. We've got all the stimulus that's coming in. We've got um, have to take our cell phones home from work and work from, you know, home every day and on the weekends. So I think there's a lot more pressure in that way, and stress and pressure turn to worry, and then there we are. You know, we're just, 
we're inundated. And it'd be great if we could quiet some of that external stimulus down, but we also have to figure out what to do once it starts to show up inside our body and our mind. Is is there um is there a known cause for this because it's just it seems like some people handle it well or differently better than others. Well, yes, I you know, I think some people are built a little more resilient than others. Some people have the nervous system of a turtle some people have the nervous system of a racehorse and uh, and so i i think that part is there and a lot of it is genetics there's some issue around developmental stuff so that's why we talk about helping parents help their kids but i think one of the pieces that's also there is especially with the anxiety disorders is this intolerance of uncertainty about certain themes. Uh, People who need to know how it's going to turn out, need to have the answer, need to do it right. Perfectionism comes in there. So we've got a mix of of nature and nurture that show up in people who don't handle worry and anxiety quite so well. So true. So true. Talk to us um, about your book, Stopping the Noise in Your Head. Um, what, What do you mean by the noise in our head? Well, if you think about worries that come in, and worries are essential. We have to have worries. Right. That's how we prioritize sign our life. Right. And it, it motivates us. But there's worries that are signals, and there's worries that are noise, and that's where we have trouble. Signals are supposed to be, you know, worry is really built to be the first step in the problem-solving process. And so when you get a worry that comes in, all worries come in as signals, and we got to dis- differentiate, is this something I need to handle right now, or is this noise? You know, I already have it scheduled, I'm going to work on it tomorrow, or, you know, I'm, I'm, it, there, it's repetitious, unproductive thoughts that make us anxious are the noise, and so that's really what the book is about, how to sort those things out. We're not working on problem solving in the book. We're working on all that stuff that I don't want to hear in my head, but I do. You know, we spent 25% of our day talking to ourselves. That's one, you know, one minute out of every four minutes we're talking to ourselves. And if we allow the worry to be talking so much, that's trouble. So that's what mm. the book is about, how to manage those noisy worries. Boy, that's that's such a great way to look at it. I mean, the our brain would be warning us, hey, you better get that thing turned in. You better get that report done. You better get that done. But you may already make, be making progress on it. Um, and and if, if you're not careful, then you actually could just keep having – because it, it's not just a thought either, is it? Because the thought eventually turns to a chemical reaction in you. Oh, absolutely. The thought instantly creates that distress. And, you know, we – uh, that that's what happened. And then part of what happens in the brain is the the mind thinks that worrying is problem solving. It doesn't understand that worry is actually problem generating. So we really do have to come in consciously and make some decisions about what we're going to do. And and part of what I talk about is really four four tasks that we have. You have to step back in the moment and recognize I'm doing it now. I'm having this worry and it's not necessary. Then you got to be willing. The second step really is to want it, which is the insane part of it all, which is if I'm already worrying, fine, I got this. The, the reason we want to want it is because if you 
don't want it, you know, if you hear in your mind this worry, you go, oh, I've got to get rid of this, that generates more distress. The amygdala hears you say, this is wrong and bad, help me. So there's a kind of a manipulation that we do psychologically around that. And then you just got to step forward to the tasks that are hard. So many people worry because they don't get around to the task. Yeah. And, and that's critically important. But when you get around to these tasks, you know, you've got to be willing to be awkward, clumsy, insecure, unsure, maybe even embarrassed and ashamed. Because if, and that's where people get stopped to who have anxiety. Because, too, they, like, I have sons that uh, they're way so, they're so socially conscientious that that they like they won't we we, all, we watched a family dancing together and just embar in an embarrassing way just having fun and dancing and all my kids were like yeah I would never do that I'm not going to do that I'm never going to ever ever do something like that it's almost like they're they just don't want they don't want to be able to relax and let go but it ends up becoming a it's too awkward for them. Is when in your in your process of recognizing the worry, kind of working through the want versus the not want, stepping forward. What was the fourth task? The fourth task is to be cunning. Uh, these all these disorders are very clever. They use human nature. Who in the world wants to get up and give a talk? Right. If they may be judged critically, or they might have a panic attack while they're up there. It's so you've got to change your attitude a little bit. So that's, I guess, you know, part of that being willing to be clumsy and awkward and so forth is part of it. Because well, any time we learn something new, we're going to be clumsy at it. If you decided to master um, Italian at your age, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be really not that great at it. Sorry, man. No, sorry. But, no, but you're right on. You know, if you're not if you're not willing to go through that phase, right. so that that's where a kind of cunning move is. And and the other, you know, it, what I talk about a lot is act as though. And, that, and I don't mean fake it till you make it. I mean when you get this kind of insecurity that's stopping you, you got to get a position that is I'm going to operate now as though I can do this, as though these worries are, are noise, I don't need to pay attention to mm. them. So I'm going to step forward as though everything's going to work out okay, because otherwise, the, you know, the biggest crutch that people use in, in word situations is just avoid. Yeah. They just step back. And then, then, you know, you can get comfortable, but then your, your world is really small, and and it gets harder the next time. Like you're, you're teaching us some skills to overcome it, but if you just hide from it, then I mean this isn't going to change. Your anxiety will just be the next thing tomorrow, and the next yeah, thing yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. Here's the other interesting thing that reinforces it. When I you know step out of the grocery store because I started to get kind of panicky or whatever, I finish that chart in my mind, and I imagine my anxiety getting worse and worse and worse and something terrible happening. And that imagery after an avoidance is people don't realize that they do that every single time. You know, good thing I left or good thing I took my Valium or mm. good thing I had my cell phone with me or something terrible would have happened. So oh, yeah. that always gets reinforced. You gotta, that's part about step, 
you know, the other part about stepping back is stepping back and recognizing what your challenger is doing to you in your in your mind and go, okay, well, that's, oh, right, I just stepped out, my heart rate's cooled, slowed down, my respiration's better, I feel better, this is a good strategy to back away. And then, as you're, you're saying, Matt, you just get trapped yeah. by your avoidance. This is um, also, again, we're speaking with Dr. Reed Wilson, who is the author of the book um, Stopping the Noise in Your Head, A New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry. He's written many other books and um, is also just an international expert in the treatment of anxiety disorders um, and has a, a treatment center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Also, you can find more at his website, anxieties.com. But Reed, one of the things, too, it seems like that a lot of the answers to this, um, it's – I mean, there, there's the therapy side of it where you can go get the therapy. But a lot of this seems like it's just kind of recognizing what you're battling as as far as anxiety goes. And then it's – a lot of it seems like emotional intelligence, social intelligence. It's just – it's information. You just need more and more skills and coping abilities to handle it. Well, I, I think you're right. It's, it's like psychoeducation. If you, yeah. I'm a cognitive therapist, so, so I'm going to say yes to what you're, you're saying, which is, and I, I really believe, even if people have to come into treatment for some of this stuff, if you can get your head straight about it, if you can get oriented about what's required and why you would go toward, you know, the, the paradoxical part here is your job is to want to, experience what you don't want to experience that's that's nuts but if you can understand that that if you really got something in front of you that you want to accomplish you want to learn to fly comfortably to the wedding in three months or whatever it may be you have to get yourself in your head straight around i'm taking on this task you know if if i have to eat what you're serving give me two portions and give it to me now it's it's an if you can make it into almost like an aggressive sport if you can get big you know there's a part of us that gets afraid and intimidated and doesn't have many resources but we got another side of us that can certainly take on you know a a mama bear kind of approach to things if we can get ourselves focused like that and then step into even step into treatment Oh, your therapist is going to really love you. <laughs> yeah. It's going to make her job a lot easier. It's so true. I mean, just almost taking it on as, yeah, like you're saying, as if it's a sport, as if it's something you aggressively want to get better. Can you, just in all of your experience of working with people with anxiety, talk to me about the benefits of um, somebody that can effectively manage their anxiety? Because it seems like as I interact with a lot of people suffering from anxiety, they have a a unique, actually almost, um, I don't know, an advanced sense of others, of themselves. They read people pretty well a lot of times. There seems like a lot of gifts around this. Well, I think, you know, I started way back 35 years ago working with panic disorder and agoraphobics. and, And, you know, that's often what they would say after treatment, which is they are they feel weller than well, hmm. you know. Yeah. And I think part of it is the willing to be vulnerable, willing to be congruent with what you're feeling, willing to have people see your frailties and keep moving anyway, that, you know, I'm the messenger 
and I may, you know, goof things up or say the wrong word, but it's the message that I'm trying to deliver that is important to me. And I think, I think the other piece that people learn over time, and I think we as therapists make a little mistake here, is that, you know, we try to teach people to relax all the time. You know, if you get anxious, you know, learn the, you know, do these little relaxation skills. And relaxation is fine if it comes easily, but I think people who really catch on to this stuff I would call this arousal congruent, which means Mm. when I step into a situation, I am anxious. I don't have to calm down to master this situation. When you tell somebody or somebody believes when I step into this situation and I get anxious, I need to calm down now, that's what I would call arousal incongruent. Right. hard to change my psychophysiology in the moment that feels threatening to me. That's just a difficult task. So I think people who do get better are better capable of handling those moments of anxiety instead of running away from them. That's, you know, maybe that's a great, it's a, you, you don't need to not feel aroused and anxious. You, you just need to be able to feel it and drive with it. And focus your attention. Yeah. You know, change your change your attention away from, oh, my God, how's this going to go? You know, we can only hold on to four chunks of information at any one moment. And if I start thinking about this is bad, I don't want this happening, I can't do this, well, now there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because I'm getting clumsy because I can't – I don't have enough consciousness to focus on the task. I'm all tied up in I hope things go Perfectly. Such great advice. Um, when you think about it too, Reed, again, somebody who's, who's uh, processed and, and um, worked with and done therapy with people, cognitive behavioral approaches, what are, some of the, what are some of the other tools you use to help eliminate the noise? Or how do you break down some of those other categories you were talking about? Um, what are some tricks of the trade? Well, I think if we just back up a little bit to this concept of, of stepping back, for me, you know, as we were saying, for me to understand what is expected of me, what is going to happen in my body just naturally, and be willing to recognize that moment and then welcome that moment, is really welcoming it. It's like, come on, come on in, you know, allow the distress to come in, allow the uncertainty and, and anxiety to come in, because they're going to come in anyway. Yeah. And, and the other thing I, I talk to people about, and also parents working with children, it's like, you can't do this work and feel confident about it. You have to, you have to do this work and be willing to be courageous. You know, confidence is, I know this is going to turn out. Well, anything that we're doing that's difficult, we're not going to know how it's going to turn out, although we have wishes. So to step forward courageously, I'm scared and I'm going to do it anyway. You know, a lot of children who have anxiety disorders, about 65% of them, have a parent who has an anxiety disorder. So if we can help the parents model being courageous for their kids, that's helpful, too. I think we go, you know, <laughs> courage first, yeah. comfort second is, is the way it's best to go, in, in my opinion. I think I learned from you in one of your books uh, about anxious parenting. Um, 
that sometimes it's the more anxious parent that is hardest for the child to work with. Well, you know, there are, again, skills for the parents to pay attention to because I can be really anxious about what my child's about to do as she climbs up on the monkey bars or whatever. But on my face, I need to look pleased, <laughs> right? You feel whatever yeah. you want inside yourself, you know. And, and I think the other, the other piece that happens is that parents get this, this kind of, sense of danger and every, you know, going outdoors is dangerous and, and, you know, learning to ride a bike is dangerous and and that needs to get shifted. And and they tend to, you know, your child comes and says, you know, just as a simple example, I'm, I'm afraid that there's some, you know, there's a boogeyman underneath the bed, you know, for, for the parent to say, don't be scared. That's just not helpful. Yeah. You know, it, we want to start with our kids who are scared to go, I get it. You know, I understand why you're scared. That, that makes sense to me, because if I were thinking so-and-so, whatever, then I'd be scared, too. Let's, let's start talking about, you know, how to step forward even though you're scared, or, you know, let me help you reframe the situation so, so it's not quite so scary for you. So. Mm. You, you made an interesting point, too, that 25 percent of the time we are talking to ourselves. That, exactly. That's and a scary thought. That, that's a scary thought. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, that's what's happening. You know, we're, we're making decisions moment by moment. Let's, I'm going to pay attention to this now. I need to stop paying attention to my email and get to work and mm. that kind of thing. So, so self-talk is a huge part of what I do with people. And, and we do it in two simple ways. One is either I talk to myself to motivate myself, you know, I can do this, I'm ready, uh, whatever happens, I'll handle it, those kinds of things. And then secondly, we have to give ourselves instructions. Sometimes they need to come across almost like commands. You know, any, anyone who is in a profession that deals with crisis, you know, firefighters, uh, police officers, uh, surgical unit folks, pilots, uh, commercial airlines, they all operate based on commands. Hmm. They tra- and they train themselves over and over again. Why? Because when you become scared, your brain turns to mush. <laughs> you can't. It's very difficult to concentrate. So you better be doing some things more automatically when you hear it. So, you know, somebody who is, has social anxiety and is afraid to speak up in class that she may say the wrong thing and other students criticize her, she, when she's ready she, in, in the classroom, she needs to have a message that comes up that says, speak up, yeah. <laughs> raise your hand, you know, you can do this, it's time. And, and really, you know, the last thing I would just say about this is, is that before you enter some of these situations like that, get yourself oriented, talk to yourself before you step in there, because when you step into a difficult situation, your first response you're going to have is, this seems like a really bad idea, right? <laughs> and you've got to get ready for those kind of messages. And then almost, you know, what I'd say is, you, you know, you strategize ahead of time, and then you've got to operate like the actor in the drama, like an automaton. You know, don't analyze your actions in the middle of a threatening situation, because then you're going to back up. 
Yeah. No, such great advice. Such great advice. Dr. Reed Wilson, thank you again for your time, your insight. The name of the book, Stopping the Noise in Your Head, The New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry. You can also go to his website, uh, www.anxieties.com, anxieties.com. Helping you combat anxiety. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball, friends. You know, again, it's a wave of anxiousness, worry, nervousness that's overtaking. I think so many of us, 40 million people now suffering from anxiety and worry. Just a a little bit of advice that I'm seeing a lot just with my own clients is this simple idea of quit passing this down or quit passing it down to your children without doing something about it. Somebody needs to stop the pattern. And um, again, anxiety, there's there's definitely, you know, we know that there's a genetic component of it that we do hand down. But as we just learned from Dr. Reed Wilson, there are so many things we can learn to do by paying attention to our emotions, by recognizing the worry, by not just fighting it and not wanting it and putting our head in the sand. We also need to learn to fix, to adjust, to learn to to manage the emotional side, but the options to me, it really, and the metaphor I use with my clients is when you have anxiety, you're like a Ferrari in a world full of Chevys. Everyone around you seems to be handling, you know, the four-wheeling adventure so well, and you keep overheating and spinning out, and you don't get any traction, and you just keep struggling. It it doesn't mean you're not a great car. You're a Ferrari, for heaven's sakes. It's just you may not be in the perfect situation for you. So you've got to start adjusting. You've got to shift differently. You've got to pit. You've got to recognize what aren't the situations or prepare yourself better for those situations so that uh, they don't sneak up on you and you lose all traction and all hope. It's it's some pretty basic skills. But again, I'm not saying you're to blame if your kids have it. That's not the point. The point is you as an adult can start to learn how better to handle yours. And as you learn better, you'll have better ways and methods to teach your children. If you have anxiety and worry, you can no longer pretend like you don't. You can no longer just hide away. If you have children, you need to teach your children how to overcome it by modeling it and by being a great example of learning how to drive that Ferrari that uh, you have and now that your child has. So anyway, uh, just insight. That's all we're trying to give you, more tools, more information to live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Yes, it's time to get back to some empty news with Jeffrey Simpson. What have you got, Jeff? You know, you've got a lot of experience as a divorce mediator. Yes. I wonder how you would counsel this couple uh, after losing her home to her ex-husband in a bitter divorce. Ah. The woman decided, you know, if I can't live there, nobody can. No, 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 no. But unfortunately, uh, it ruined it for about 19 other homes as well because she stacked a set of mattresses in her home, set it ablaze, Uh, and apparently the fire got a little out of control and it damaged 19 other homes in the neighborhood. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, not a good way to do that. 
Yeah. So uh, she set the fire and then left the house with her two cats. Authorities say she walked for an hour to a local Walmart where she called 911 to report the fire. Her home was one of four houses that were destroyed while 16 others suffered damage. Holy cow. Yeah. No, yeah. there's better ways, better ways to handle your emotion. That's the problem. Once you're in the moment, you just you, you kind of lose it a bit. And next thing you know, you're in jail for arson. Gah. Ah, folks, it's a tough world we're living in, and uh, we just got to find better ways to handle it. That's why we're here. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Remember me. Okay, I will. Though I have to say goodbye, remember me. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Coco, remember me. This song did it. An Academy Award. Hmm. I don't think it should have beat. Sorry. The best song last night. This is Jeff's favorite song, and so now he's gloating in happiness. Aren't you, Jeff? <laughs> Welcome to the program, Doctor Matt here, along with Jeff and Terry and uh, Coco. Is that nominated for two Oscars? Yeah, won two Oscars. Yeah, batted a hundred. Yeah, and uh, you know, if you if you were like me last night, you got to check in and out, and in and out, and in and out, and in and out of the Oscars because it went on like it was an all night event. So you could actually do other things. That's, I think it's still going on, actually. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. And now they're having jet skiing uh, giveaways, lots of stuff. Uh, so we'll do, a little, uh, we'll do a little recap of the Oscars with the help of Jeff. So it's crazy. Watched. It used to be, you know, you would get nominated for, like, all the awards in the world, and you'd walk away with all of them, pretty much. The last yeah. film to really do that was Return of the King back in, I think, 2003. It was nominated for uh, it was either 11 or 13 Academy Awards, won every single one wow, of them. I think sweet. it was 11. And uh, you just don't see that anymore. Now, since it's all about in being inclusive, mm-hmm. and let's just give everybody a piece of the pie, the most wins from last night, four. Is is it just that we have more movies because we need more distribution and we have more distributors and more ways to get movies out? No, I think that why I think there are consolations. Well, are we they? didn't give you this award, so we'll give you this award. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the Shape of Water won four awards. Coco, we said won two. Uh, Dunkirk won two or three of them. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. It, one of the other films that did not win was All the Money in the World. That was the film that famously replaced Kevin Spacey with Christopher Plummer, who ended up getting an Oscar nomination, becoming the oldest uh, performer to get an acting yeah. nomination at 88. Do you, do you feel like if, if, you, if you were nominated, is that enough for these people? Some people would say it's not enough to win. There are oh, a lot really? of people that yeah, that, win too. that uh, say that their career was never the same after winning an Oscar, and not in a good way. Really? Yeah. The curse of the Oscar. So speaking of all the money in the world, one of the funnier bits uh, involved all the money in the world where Jimmy uh, – Jimmy, I keep saying Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Kimmel was talking about the discrepancy between what Mark Wahlberg – and Michelle Williams were paid to come back and do the reshoots right. with Christopher Plummer. Mark Wahlberg was paid a million and a half. 
And Michelle Williams uh, was given $80 per day as a per diem. Oh, boy. And the crazy thing is this. And what made it especially unfair is that Mark and Michelle are represented by the same agency. And I have to admit, this story really surprised me. This one shook me because if we can't trust agents, (laughs) who can we trust? That's a great point. You can't even trust your agent anymore. But that's the one where Wahlberg said he'd give all of his money to charity. After a week of public shame, yeah, he decided to give the money away. But that's probably the bigger question in the disparity between, say, in Hollywood, who's getting paid what, is the agents are the ones negotiating all this. So why aren't they working for their client if even if it's the same movie you you kind of don't you have an idea maybe what somebody else is making why wouldn't your 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 client you know yeah. it just seems like you're you're settling for a dollar amount where, where you could ask for more and it wouldn't be that outlandish to do so but the agents don't seem to do that yeah. for the women you mm. know aside from the maniacal laugh from Frances mcdormand when she won <laughs> um she did encourage all the female nominees in any category to stand up and she said all, all of you decision makers, don't talk to us at the after party about some of these ideas that we have to yeah. be in films. Come to us, invite us into your office two days later, or better yet, come to us. Come to our office. Yeah. And I mean, you hope that this movement continues, right? And it, you assume... It is a little silly that there is such a disparity yeah. in the, you know, how much they get paid. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, by gender? Or yeah. is it by... Is it by box office? I mean, I look at it. I mean, there's a serious disparity, too, in sports, right? But the unions have fought strong enough in the NFL to make sure that players well, have more parity. There's also – in sports, it's how much you create – money you create, right? The, yeah. the, the the male sports make a lot more money, and so yeah. there's a disparity. But isn't that what the movies are? But in the movies, you have – what was it? The movie uh, Dallas Buyers Club? Uh-huh. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Who was in that movie? Matthew McConaughey. And who was the female in that movie? Uh, uh, oh, it was Jennifer Garner. Gen- no. Well, there was Jared Leto, who plays a, a Who's transgender the, it's not, or transvestite. It's not Jennifer Garner. It's um, from Hunger Games. What's her name? Jennifer Lawrence? There, wasn't she in that movie? No, it was Jennifer Garner. Jennifer Lawrence was in a It wasn't Dallas Buyers Club then, but Jennifer Lawrence was in a movie. She was paid $10 million. Her co-stars were paid more. And that movie was like... Like nominated, I forget the movie, but ended up she's 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 leading box office. She's making money. Her movies are successful, and she's getting less than her male co-star in these movies. Yeah. And she's like, and what? her question to herself: This was last year. She put, a, I think, an essay asking, "Why am I settling for this? Why is this okay well, to me to do this?" You know, and this yeah. was later on. She's looking back, like, "What am I doing?" Wasn't she? Didn't she top the list of Forbes' highest paid actresses? Right. But in, again, this situation, like why you're you're in the same movie, right? It's not like she's like a supporting actress. Or, I mean, right. she's she's someone they're going to to to, to advertise and say, go see this movie because she's in it. And she was getting less than her male co-star, and she's like, what's going on here? Why yeah. am why am I? And and it was more her looking at it like, why am I saying it's okay? Well, maybe this is now this is the new. This is the new answer, right? And this, now it's we're, this, we're getting this information. This kind of out there this now. kind of industry, it, it the top, the higher you make, the more it helps the people below you mm-hmm. when it comes to you know getting their pay to be higher too. Yeah. So that's why 
it's tough because she's the highest paid, but at the same time, she mm-hmm. gets more of the people below her are able to make more also. Yeah. So a lot of talk about gender equality and also a lot of talk about uh, minorities. Terry would have appreciated this joke from Jimmy Kimmel where he's talking about, like, why did Superman – in all these movies, people are saying, why does Superman have to be – White. Well, because in all the comic books, he's white. That's just the way it's always been. He's like, you know what else is true, though? Uh, Superman is not real. <laughs> true. That's, that's a really good point. Yeah. There was some. Which uh, is why I slept. Yeah. Through. <laughs> there, yeah. Justice, Justice League. League. There was some discussion in the past. They're talking about all the people who could take over the James Bond franchise. Yeah. And they toss out Idris Elba. He said, you know, I'd be totally fine with that. And and people are like, but he's black. I don't know if that would work. Mike, it doesn't matter. James Bond's fiction. Who cares? Did, but yeah, totally the, work. I mean, did the books even ever specify what well, color he was? He's I, he's an Irish citizen who's working in the British government. And so, yeah, pretty much. But I mean, this is this is a great discussion because it also t- teaches us that m- many people aren't looking at any of that. Right. So as they're having to fight for the equality and do all of this. I don't even know what you call it. Just these movements to get stuff to happen. Some just want to watch a movie and some just want to celebrate a movie. And I wonder if that distracts from them wanting to watch the Oscars. Yeah, it's you know? interesting. I don't. I don't think. I just. I like you. I just want to be entertained. I just want to. Yeah. I don't care if you're white, black, yellow. Yeah. But then just, you you cast an all female Ghostbusters movie, and people just lose their minds because it's like, I, come on, it's different than what but, I remembered when I was did, a kid. I know, but did it sell? Did it sell tickets? Did it make money? It did okay. Not enough to do a sequel, I don't think. But see, I actually went to go see that. I remember seeing that movie in spite of all the haters. And then it turns out it just wasn't all that yeah, funny. It wasn't that funny <laughs> movie at the beginning. With, so. But then the joke about Black Panther, hey, in the, just in the little bit of time we've been here watching the Oscars, yeah. it's made another $45 million. It is, he does bring up an interesting point, though. And, you know, you talk about James Bond being black. Oh, you can't do that because, you know, James Bond is a white character. There, People are constantly criticizing other franchises where you have, like, maybe an Indian character or some kind of an Asian character, and it's played by a white person. Yeah. And yet, they're, so they're willing to do that all the time because maybe they're more bankable, right? Yeah. But you don't see it the other way. Maybe what they need to do is have, like they do with the pros, everyone's got franchised, every team has a franchise player. You can start putting certain caps on certain talent, and you just have to reach male, female, whatever. You just have to reach a certain level of power. Okay. Like, you know, when you're the guy that's the franchise player for a team, you automatically make $20 million a film. Hmm. See, this is where the unions would love to probably come in and do it. That's what's happened in other sports is the unions took over. Not just the agents and the unions. Everybody's got power but the people that do the sport. I'm excited for you to speak with Spencer and Jerem about Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Kobe Oscar Bryant. Academy Award winner. Kobe Bryant. And again, I mean, I think that just, yeah, it just seems interesting to me. Okay. Wow. I didn't even remember that. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, Let's get to the rest of the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? President Trump made up his mind about tariffs by telling two of his economic advisors to argue about it in front of him. Former White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus said Sunday, casting his decision-making process as dramatic but effective. 
I think it was uh, what the president does. He writes about it even in his own books. He puts rivals around him intellectually, Priebus said on ABC's This Week. You have people like Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross and top economic advisor Gary Cohn, and he puts these two guys in front of him and says, okay, fight out tariffs in front of me. And they fight it out. The media covers the fight, but ultimately the decision is made. Ross is supportive of Trump's surprise announcement of heavy tariffs on steel and aluminum imports, while Cohen is not. It, it's like it's almost like worldwide wrestling, WWE. Just fight it out. It's kind of a fake fight, right? But it's, <laughs> is, is that how he learns the policy? I don't know. I mean, it seems like maybe he sees what's a really good argument, so he can then someone, copy it. Someone observing the NAFTA meeting that was televised, and later the gun control meeting that was uh, yeah. televised. Both of them look like The Apprentice. Both of them had people sitting around the table who about a quarter of the way through realized that uh, they need to play up to the president to get his favor, just like you do on The Apprentice, to keep from getting fired. And it just kind of all turns into this reality TV show that he seems to govern things by. Yeah. I mean, that's just another way to do it. Right. Yeah. Maybe not the best way to learn. Maybe not. but but Because, again, who would win... The argument might be the best debater in the room, not the right. best policy. Absolutely. And at this point, uh, President Trump talked about this all the way through the campaign, that he wanted to put tariffs, yep. that we're getting robbed, and he's going to use tariffs to bring, so, bring back the balance. Now so. it's happening, and we're first targeting... The whole entire world when it comes to aluminum and steel. Including apparently. our comrades up north. Right. Canada. Let's not call them comrades. We have a... Well, could be. You don't know. Maybe he knows something we don't. He does have intelligence briefings that we don't have uh, access to. Jared doesn't have access to them anymore. Right, that's right. Uh, A grand jury subpoena reviewed by uh, Axios that special counsel Robert Mueller sent to to a witness indicates that many in President Trump's known inner circle and the president himself are within the scope of the Russia investigation. The list subpoenas all communications, meaning emails, texts, handwritten notes, etc., that this uh, witness sent and received to Carter Page, Lewandowski, Donald Trump, Hope Hicks, Keith Schiller, Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon. The subpoena calls for all communications from November 1st, 2015, five months after the president's first announced his campaign to the present to be turned over. This one witness who has all this information because they're one of the intermediaries between all these hubs in the White House. That witness, they want all the communications. So... They're all within the scope. There was a question that the president is out of the scope of yeah. this. He's not. He's inside the scope of the investigation. All of the people listed were either part of the Trump campaign or are former or current employees at the White House. Oof. So I don't think this is ending soon, nope. even though they keep I saying thought, yeah, it's going to end. I was hoping this thing was going to wrap up, but apparently this, this may go into the actual election season. Possibly. We'll see what happens. Uh, As Russia's virtual war against the U.S. continues unabated with the midterm elections approaching, the State Department has yet to spend any of the $120 million it has been allocated since late 2016 to counter foreign efforts to meddle in elections or sow distrust in democracy, reports the New York Times. As a result, not one of the 23 analysts working in the department's Global Engagement Center, which has been tasked with countering Moscow's disinformation campaign, speaks Russian. Oh, so the the office that's supposed to specifically stop this, no one in there speaks Russian. Uh, do they have people like operatives outside that like translate? They, maybe they can bring in a temp or something, but you think that would a be Russian something temp. in office would be yeah, that'd be important. Thing. Important, and the department hiring freeze has hindered efforts to recruit the computer experts needed to track Russian efforts. 
Yeah. Okay. So that's the current state of combating what happened during the last election. <laughs> uh, finally, over the weekend was the NFL Combine. Yes. If you don't know what that is. Shame it's on you. Kind of the dress rehearsal for NFL pl- or players coming out of college, hoping to make an NFL team. Right. They go to Indianapolis, the uh, stadium where the Indianapolis Colts play. I'm not sure why Indianapolis ends up being the place where they go, but it's where they go. Central location. Is that it? Probably. Okay. So they're in, Indi- in Indianapolis. All the players are out on the field. They're in t-shirts and shorts, and they're running around. Uh, Jumping through tires, sprinting, sprinting, high jumping, high jumping. They do basic, lifting, and it's fun to watch. It's it, like my breakfast. You can <laughs> sit there and you turn on the NFL Network during that weekend, and you just—it's not really like it's compelling, but you don't know why. If you don't know the players, it's not as compelling because I've. But when you know who they are, you start to say, "Oh, that guy's got a great shot." I think because I've done all of those tests myself yeah. that I can sit back and kind of watch and go, "Oh, all right, look that at that!" Was you amazing. Know? Yeah. They they do some interesting things where they use some computer programs to compare players from the past. Oh, really? Who have ran the forty yard dash, yeah, which yeah. is the statement of speed that they, they they take as very important during this, and they run them against offensive linemen. They you know all kinds of, and then they throw. Uh, one of the hosts of the event for the NFL Network, a guy named Rich Eisen, in mm-hmm. a suit. Yeah, how did Rich do? His are always like about six something, whereas the fastest guys are running it at four seconds. He's running it about six. What did Tom Brady run? Do you remember? Probably about a five something, five, minutes, five seven. Six, He's seven, pretty slow. Eight minutes. So I mean, they do all. They they try to do things to make it in- interesting, but for the most part, when I turn it on, it's just for a few minutes at a time. But watching offensive linemen block, yeah, practice blocking. Is very interesting because I've done that. Yeah, you've been an offensive. And I'm like, linebacker. wow, he's pretty good. That now takes you're some built skill more right like there. a linebacker, I think. So for the, it's not necessarily for the the common person just skipping skip, yeah. skipping by. But why would you stop at the NFL Network if you don't care? Great point. I mean, mm. people. I mean, there's no point to go there. It's like watching the Oscars. If yeah, you don't care. So the combine, the combines there. There's a guy from University of Oregon named Tanner Carew. He's a long snapper. He's the guy that on a punt, yeah, or a field goal, he's the guy that has to, you know, basically lean over the ball, look between his legs, and fire this football in a back. perfect spiral right to the punter to make a perfect punt or to the to the holder to hold the ball. Right, and it's a very specific skill. A spiral yeah. backwards through oh, your yeah. legs. No, I, by the way, not to brag, I'm very good at it. Okay, well, that's that's another skill that we just found out. <laughs> yeah, so he he was one Wrong. of the top snapping prospects in the class of 2014. So coming into college, he uh, his rely he reliably fired the football to punters and holders in Oregon for four seasons. He played in 13 games for Oregon's college football playoff team this, about a couple years ago as a freshman and didn't miss a game in his last three seasons with the program. So he hasn't missed a game in three yeah. years, right? He now is looking for one of 32 jobs. This is the only thing he does. He's not ex- he's not exceptionally large. It's a skilled position. So that's what he's going to yeah. do. Go in and snap the football between his legs backwards. That's just, I mean, think of that. Right? <laughs> that's a great game. There's 32 jobs. Um, they, so they went and talked to him. This SB Nation, the website, they went and talked to him and they brought him a list of 14 items and asked him to rank them according to how difficult they would be to long snap backwards through your legs. It, it, and he, it, just, he just looked at him and went, what do you want me to do? They okay, just gave him this yeah. list, right? Let's hear the list. So his list, the number one thing that's difficult. Yeah. A pizza. Hmm. Now, can you fold the pizza? No, they said it needs to be no. you know yeah, flat. That, so you're looking like 12 yeah. inches. You, you'll have to widen your stands. Yeah, and it, no. I mean it's not like a frisbee. How do you put a spin on that? Right. right. Number two is a hockey stick. 
I thought I see a hockey stick to me would be a little easier. Right. That's why it's not above a pizza. Yeah. Pizza is difficult than a hockey stick. Um, then three was a baby. <laughs> Babies, by the way, and Mama said, "Don't ever long snap the baby." He said he hesitated on the baby because he's like, "Wait, a baby? What are you? What are we? What are we hiking a, a, a baby, baby for?" Is in many ways, if you swaddle it, it's in the shape of a football. So to speed this up, he goes an empty paper towel tube. That's difficult. Yeah. A burrito, because it would fall apart. Yeah. Uh, a Tide Pod, because it's so small, yeah. it's hard to, yeah. Uh, a feather, right? Now, yeah. I think a feather would be higher on the list, but, you know, whatever. He's doing the spot, you know, kind of right in the moment. Uh, a frozen ham. It's that, not really shaped mm, that way. heavy. That's yeah. a heavy thing. A Hot Pocket. Hot Pocket. Uh, a hardback book. Yeah. be kind of yeah. hard. Uh, an iPhone. Yeah. It's not really balanced for a hike. A bowling ball with the weight undisclosed, so you don't really know yeah. what you're getting into. And then uh, 13, there's 14 items. He, he said 13 would be a football. That would be the... Huh. On listing from most difficult to least difficult, a football, yeah. 14 was a baseball. He said a baseball would be easier to throw in a hiking motion backwards through your legs. You'd think because a long snapper has thrown thousands of footballs, that would yeah. be easier. I would think that a baseball would throw you off. Because yeah. you're so used to the football, mm-hmm. hmm. so you'd throw, it over the, you'd throw it over the uh, field post. For truly information you didn't know that you didn't need to know. Didn't need to know. There you go. See, that's why we're here, to give you the news that you didn't even know you needed. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking with Kim Giles about caring too much about what others think. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Uh, Dr. Matt here. And uh, coming up now, uh, we're going to be joined by Kim Giles, who is a friend of the show, uh, one of our great contributors. She's the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching and also of the 12 Shapes Relationship System. You can uh, go to the website 12shapes.com where you can get more information about that. And today is Kim, Kim is talking with us about an article she wrote on KSL.com about caring too much about what others think. Kim, are you there? I'm I'm here, Matt. How are you? Good to have Good. you. This is a fun topic. I know it really is. Do, do you think? Do you think we we there's a lot of us that care way too much about what others think? I I do. I think a lot of us struggle with this. I'm, I occasionally run into somebody who says I really don't care what people think at all, and sometimes I think even that is is sort of an overcompensating that there's still fear of not being enough underneath it. And and I really believe everybody on the planet is battling that fear of not being good enough to some degree every day. No, I agree. And it's yeah. um and, and then what does it do? I guess it freezes us from voicing our real opinion, from doing what we think is best. Yeah, we basically kind of feel at risk all the time. And so everybody around us, every situation is kind of a threat. And what I mean is we see anybody else doing well and successful, you know, what does that say about me? And really, it shouldn't say anything. This is all story we add to everything we see. But we we see the world through this lens of I might not be enough. And so it, it looks like everybody else is a threat to me. 
right? And and then, yeah. by the way, whether they are or not, whether they think you know whether go, whether they are going to shut you down or not, it doesn't matter because the fear is in you. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a couple of signs that would really let you know if this is a big issue for you because sometimes it's playing out a little bit subconsciously. Yeah, good. What so are those them, signs? Yeah, one of them is if you over apologize, and and. You know, you're always saying, oh, sorry, I did that. Sorry, I did that. You're you're basically trying to manage other people's perceptions of you. And I don't know if you you remember, you teased me for a long time about this meditation retreat that I went to. Mm, yeah, um, that and, that beautiful. Well, it was, uh, where'd you go, India? Well, this particular one was up by Sun Valley, but, but it was 10 days that you couldn't That's talk. right. You couldn't talk. Couldn't speak. And the biggest thing I learned from not being able to speak for 10 days is that 90% of the stuff I wanted to say was about managing other people's perceptions of me. So I would, like, accidentally step on someone's toe, and I couldn't apologize. And, and I couldn't manage that they might think I'm a jerk or that I don't, you know, don't care. And, and you just realize how much of your time and energy hmm. is actually put into what, what you wear making sure you're impressing people, um, make, sometimes changing even your viewpoint to agree with whoever you're with. Yeah, These are all things that we, we do kind of subconsciously when we're trying to manage other people's perception. Mm. Uh, another one I want you to look for is if you get dressed and then you ask someone in your house, does this look okay? Do I look all right? Hmm. That, that, that's a pretty strong sign that you're you're overly concerned about what other people think of you. So if you've got, especially girls that are kids, teens, that do that, don't enable it. Make sure you say, you know what? What matters is how you feel like you look. Don't care about anybody else. Be happy with what you think. And make sure we don't enable that neediness for validation. No, that's great advice because it is so simple, right? You, these are very subtle clues um, that uh, that we may be having this problem. And then I guess, I mean, if you do this for a lifetime, it seems like you'd really not know who you are. Yeah, you, and, and a lot of us, it's become so much of our subconscious programming. It's just how we show up in the world. Yeah. Uh, another sign is people who talk a lot kind of dominate conversations. Yeah. We, we feel validation when we talk and other people listen. So if, if we really grab every opportunity for that, we're really trying to get that validation. We also want to watch, do you, do you tell attention-getting stories? Do you put stuff on social media that's really fishing for compliments or you know, reassurance from other people? Hmm. Uh, if you're somebody who just falls apart, if you get any negative feedback or criticism, those are other signs you've got a really significant fear around the opinions of other people. Mm. What do we do? So once we notice these signs, we figure out, you know what, I've got this problem. I really do care too much about what others think. What are some things we can do to start to reverse that? Okay, so we got a lot, a lot of great ideas today to share with everybody. The first one is, is I like to choose a perspective that life is a classroom. And that I'm here to learn, but it's a classroom, it's not a test. And I know you hear me talk about this a lot, because yeah. that's one mindset shift is so life-changing for people. When you subconsciously see life as a test, 
your value is in question all the time. And you've got to constantly be, be earning points, basically, towards determining that you do have value. And if every good thing you do makes you feel better about yourself, then that also means every mistake you make is going to make you feel worse. Mm. And you're going to see your value go up and down. So instead of seeing life as a test where your value is in question, choose to see life as a classroom. And in the classroom, your value isn't in question. There's no grades. There's no points. Everybody has the same value. But every experience that comes every day is just a lesson to help grow you and help you be stronger and wiser. And I'd like to literally think of the universe as this wise teacher that's just delivering these lessons to me every day. Hmm. And then I can have these experiences but not feel like they affect my value. So I'm clumsy, I and I think you are too. Oh, I heard yeah. your story about tripping for oh. 100 feet. Yeah, it's horrible. I do it yeah, every day, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. I fall in front of people on a regular basis. Yeah. It's just yeah, how we... It's, it's how we get to know people. Yeah. But the second it happens, you feel stupid. You don't really decide to. It just hits you. Your subconscious programming takes over. Yeah. But as soon as that happens, you also have a choice to say, you know what? I'm not going to let this affect my value. I'm just going to say this is a funny thing that just happened, but it doesn't change my value as a person. And we have the power to do that every minute of, of the day if we choose it. Because we really do, right? We, we really do see that some people, we think, some people have more value than others because, you know, they're a boss or they're famous or they, um, you know, they have a lot of followers on social media. We, but we, we need to see everybody as having the same value. Yeah, and, and really, you... You have to choose a way to see human value. If you don't consciously choose a system, your subconscious is going to choose for you. So we recommend just consciously choose every minute that you're awake enough to do it, that all human beings have the same value and this isn't a test. And you just take your power back when you own that all the time. So that's, that's probably our number one thing we would recommend. And then I've got some other little ones. Every time you feel the urge to ask somebody, does this look okay? Is my hair all right? You know, whatever. Stop yourself. Don't do it. And, and choose to trust that your appearance is not tied to your value. And, and I have this little saying I use all the time. I try to get, you know, put makeup on and look good. And then I look myself in the mirror and I say, okay, this isn't your, who you are anyway. Go get them with your love. Hmm. Because your love is really who you are, and it's what people care about. Yeah. They don't care about your hair. They care how you treat them. So go get them with your love. When you're in a group and you feel the urge to tell a story or, or try to get attention, just kind of recognize I'm, I'm a little needy. Obviously, I want to tell that story so the attention goes on me. And, and in that moment, choose to, to put all the attention on someone else. Ask them some questions and let them shine and know that you kind of gave that opportunity to them. And you're actually going to feel so good about yourself afterwards knowing that you took a high road like that. That'll do more for your self-esteem than the attention would have. Absolutely. What do you do if, if everyone in the group then says, Matt, you're being so quiet? 
Why are you so quiet, Matt? What's wrong? <laughs> have you ever <laughs> seen that? They would say that It's weird because when I try to just do that and sit back a little bit, they all think something's wrong. Like, uh, Matt, are you sad? What's wrong with you? No, I'm just actually enjoying listening to the conversation. Can I just listen? But it's it's a very real thing. And you, you can see in the social dynamic with people that there is a um, – that that some like to just sit back and listen and enjoy and some like to speak and talk. And it's almost like we're we're all okay with it. But you're saying we could switch that up a little bit and and allow everyone to grow. Well, and you know what? I'm not saying don't ever talk or tell no, your right. story. Just watch if you're telling it for a love reason or a fear reason. And and really, that's the determining factor. If I've got a story that I feel like would in, sometimes entertain the group, sometimes actually benefit the people that I'm with, yeah, absolutely tell it. But notice if your desire to tell it is about trying to get that validation or attention from the group. That's a fear reason. Absolutely. And and that makes all the difference. If you're showing up trying to get or you're showing up trying to give, and that's what we kind of want to watch for. And then your confidence, yeah, your confidence will will be based on whichever your, whatever your motive is. Out of either yeah. confidence out of fear and force or confidence out of love and, and, and letting go. Um, what are some other what are some other tricks to help us overcome this caring too much about what others think? Okay, so one of the big, most painful moments for somebody like us that cares too much is when we get criticism or judgment from someone, and and it can trigger so much pain in us that fear of not being good enough. I mean, it it just can can push you over the edge emotionally, make you reactive. Sometimes we attack back. Sometimes we go to a self-pity place, but we're really affected by that criticism. And so one of the most powerful things to practice is when you do get some criticism, recognize this isn't really about your value. Your value is the same anyway. This is feedback from this other person. Is there any truth to it? Is this something I could take and and become better getting? And if there's a a great lesson for me in it, then I want to see it that way. But also sit back and make sure that you feel like it's accurate, because a lot of the time when people criticize or kind of attack you about not being enough, it's really more about them. And the truth is that their fear of not being good enough sometimes subconsciously drives them to criticize or look for the bad in others to make them feel better. Mm. And so we want to kind of step back and recognize that a lot of feedback is really coming from that same fear in them. And in that way, we're really the same. We're both struggling with the same fear. And we could actually focus on having some compassion for them. Um, I've been really working on this myself when I get criticism to say, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm going to work on that. And then really remind myself I've got the same value either way and it's okay. And, And what else could I do to show up for that other person? And that's hard. This is something we're going to have to practice because it isn't easy. But we can do it if we consciously decide to practice it. Mm, that's so true. So good. Give us uh, one more. I think we have time for one more. What other rules should we be focusing on in, in, instead of feeling this fear that we're just not good enough? Okay. So I think it's a really great practice to watch what you post on social media. 
social media is the place these days that we manage other people's perceptions of us. And so every time you get ready to post something, kind of step back from it, run it through that filter. Why do I want to post it? It Does it benefit anybody else? Or is it about looking really cool so everybody will wish they're me? You know, what? what's the real reason behind wanting to make that post? And And that's a great practice we can start doing today to just kind of, monitor our own neediness and, and that need for attention. That's so good. Because social media is where we spend our life. It's where, we, it's where we're giving so much attention. And then there's these subtle little uh, needs. And you can see it. If, if, even if you're looking at your Facebook page too much and if your own emotional strength goes up or down based on your numbers, your likes, your dislikes, you're probably in that uh, caring too much about what others think. Kim, thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Kim, again, is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching and the 12 Steps or 12 Shapes Relationship System. You can go uh, to 12shapes.com and find out more about the work she's doing there. This is the Matt Townsend Show. BYU Sports Nation will be up next with us live from Las Vegas. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, it's time to go to Vegas and... Talk the Oscars with who better than Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hi. Hey, Matt. How you guys doing? Solid. Semi-final <laughs> Monday, start of spring ball. Volleyball beat UCLA. The Oscars. There's a lot going on. You guys, have you just covered it all. Thanks so much. Have a great show. Thanks. Good luck, doctor. Good times. Hey, what do you think? Kobe Bryant pulling out an Oscar. Oh, that was the uh, the shocker of the night, right? That seemed like the sleeper. Uh, who would have thought Kobe <laughs> Bryant wins an Oscar? So it, I, I guess was he's more surprised by a movie about a woman and a fish winning eight out of or eight Oscars or something. Four four Oscars, yeah, yeah. Four Oscars, yeah. The in the shape oh, of water. Well been eight. That's awesome. It felt like eight, didn't it? <laughs> Did um so Kobe wins an Oscar? I guess you just put that next to all of your MVP awards. Your I don't know. I mean. What hasn't the guy done now? Come on. Pretty cool. That's really cool. Good good for him. And and it's what you do. Hey, by the way, how's Vegas treating you guys? Uh, Vegas is warm. Yeah. And windy. Well, I should <laughs> say warmer than Utah. I was say, it's, yeah, and it's windy. Short sleeve, but But we're inside and we're this is the day that we have been talking about for months. What this is, we, this is the day? This is the, whole the season we talked about today. Semifinals. Like, who will Monday. BYU play on semifinal Monday? We will now know, and will they win, and what does it mean for the whole definition of the season? Oh, this BYU is exciting. versus St. Mary's tonight. Yeah. 11.30 Eastern on ESPN2 and this here station, BYU Radio. Who's in the Three opposite bracket? Who who would they meet in Gonzaga the finals? And Gon- Gonzaga. Gonzaga and? San Francisco. Okay, yeah, so Gonzaga. Okay. Now, here's the thing, yes. Maddie. Hit me. Spencer's right. We've been talking about this all season. If BYU loses this game, status quo. Yeah. Third place in the league, lose the semis, go to the NIT. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's not a bad season. In fact, I would call it a good one. But it's not what people want. People want more. And that's natural, and it's actually fair. R- right. If BYU wins this game, they salvage something in this season. 
and they've got a one-game shot at the NCAA tournament. That's all I want. At a neutral court? Yeah. On a new, well, no, it's not. It's Gonzaga's second court. Oh, okay, sorry. We found the deed on the building, <laughs> and it has Mark Few's name on it. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. All right. Trust me, the amount of Gonzaga fans in here, it is not a neutral site. Interesting. They love to gamble, too. I can't speak to that. <laughs> so so this is a big game because this could either this could be something different, finally to a different level a little bit, maybe second place in the league, or, hey, relegated back to third. Well, it's a big one. Jock Landale put up 31.5 points a game against BYU in the two. That's good. Will BYU slow the Australian down? Hmm. How do you slow an Aussie? You, you double-team him. You punch a kangaroo in the face. You double-team him. <laughs> yeah, you tickle You tickle. That yeah, that's what you do. You tickle yeah. him. See how that yeah. goes. Now, now, Pepperdine lost by three in the quarters St. Mary's. Jack Lando made five shots. He scored 17 points. Pepperdine made St. Mary's shoot threes, and they shot it well, 11 of 22, but they won the game by three. That's what you got to do. Can BYU come up with a different idea from what they did in the first two games. In the first game, BYU has a shot to win. They miss. BYU lose by double digits in OT. That's a close game. That's, and at the time, I was like, all right, everything's okay. That's fine. Little did we know that'd be the closest BYU would get, really. Right. To any of the four games against Gonzaga or St. Mary's in terms of chance to win the game late. Then the game in Moraga, BYU, um, the last eight minutes, really lost the handle on that thing and lost by 13, I believe. So, or 12. So, can BYU come up with something different today? Slow down Jock Landale, and can Elijah Bryant, Yoli Childs, and T.J. Howes lead the Cougars to victory? Mm. I'm excited to watch this game tonight. It's a, it's a late game. Uh, so, you know, we were wondering here if if that's a disadvantage. That's that's a pretty late game. It is a late game. And you guys especially. in prime time at 9 Eastern. I yeah. don't know that it's a disadvantage per se. I think the hardest part for both of the teams is having to wait all day to play oh, the game. That's well, hard. It's good because uh, St. Mary's played Saturday night and BYU played Saturday afternoon. So a few more hours for the Cougs to get ready. Because BYU doesn't physically practice on Sunday. Right. So perhaps they go out and... Of course they can discuss things. Run through some things you know, in the local high school. Local ward building. Morning. Sure. Right. Sure. But Gonzaga or anybody else, if BYU chooses this, right, they could... Practice, get shots up, walk, walk through, you know, with the ball on a court. Be always more, uh, you know, get in the conference, uh, the conference room of the hotel and talk about stuff. Yeah, did um, I, I don't. Read their scriptures. Did you guys? Did you guys see the all the excitement about T.J. Haas? Uh, he's going viral. Yeah. <laughs> How do you not notice that? It's pretty fun. But um, anyway, uh, I digress. So what about spring football? I mean, that's something that you guys are going to miss, because, but we'll all be paying attention to it here. They're practicing as we speak. They're about to uh, reach the halfway point of practice for the first time in spring ball. Jeff Grimes, new offensive coordinator, new offensive staff, uh, quarterbacks, Tanner Mangum limited in what he can do. He can't go full bore, but he is out of the boot walking around. He'll do what he can in spring. So who's the quarterback? What kind of offense is BYU running? Who are the main uh, offensive contributors this time around. What does the offense look like? Lots of questions to be answered. Oh, yeah. The personnel know. Yep. In fact, if you want post-practice interviews and a recap, you can go to facebook.com slash BYUTVSports at 110 Eastern. Wow. 
and uh, Lauren McLean and Jason Shepard will hook you up. That is sweet. Why, why do you think that they waited until you two were out of town before they decided to start holding practice? Oh, listen, when the cat <laughs> is away, the mice will play. <laughs> what? Did you just make that up, or is that something? Oh, is that a real phrase? That's a real phrase. Oh, okay. Did you not? The cat is away. Yeah, the cat. The mice will play. You two are cats, though. So when the, it's more like when the kitties are away. <laughs> The mice start playing. I want you to know, Jerem, that when you asked me that, is that a real phrase? I could have said, you don't know that? Yeah. You could have pulled a Jason Shepard on But I didn't do that. I said, yes, that's a real phrase. Matt, I'm not huge on um, bullying other people. No. I think... <laughs> don't know something you know. It's just so annoying. It is. I so totally like, agree. Anytime, listen, I know the main Seinfeld phrases, but I haven't seen every episode so when someone's like, hey, you know that one sign? I'm like, no, I don't. No, I have a life. No, every single, and, and that's not the issue that I don't know. It's the, you you don't know something I know, and now I'm going to be really <laughs> loud and boisterous about it in front of everyone about the fact See? that you don't know it. See how you are. It's so annoying. But you guys protect each other. That was nice. I, I do. Well, Spencer doesn't do it a lot. We all do it, right? Right. Um, but. But Jason Shepard does it a lot. And I go, dude, you're doing it. <laughs> that's all he says. You're, do, you're doing it again. You're doing it. Is that why Jason's not on the trip with you guys? That's, that's why he's not on the trip. Yeah. Boy, that's you guys have. Mice are playing. You guys have some interesting <laughs> dynamics there at BYU Sports Nation. Well, guys, we wish you the best of luck. And travel safely. Hopefully, you'll win, we'll win tonight. That'll give you some really exciting uh, opportunities. I think that means you'd probably be there two more days. I hope they don't come home in shame. No, because no, if BYU doesn't win, I we could probably put some of the blame on them, right? On the team, yeah, but not on Spencer and no, Jerry. These guys, no, they. I mean, they might have shame for other reasons, <laughs> but uh, they are in Vegas, so you know what that means. Usually, usually they do some golfing, mm. but it sounds like it's windy, so they're probably not golfing. Maybe some miniature golf. Sometimes they'll go bowling. So it's We've funny. Covered them. Because I had asked them on Friday, oh, you guys, do you have time for this, this, this? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. I'm like, oh, then you probably don't have time for the buffets. And they're like, well, actually, there's always time for a buffet. The buffet we're killing every single day. Yeah, nobody does a buffet better than those two guys. Hey, as you know, we like to wrap up the show with a hero story so that you can see the good in the world and, and uh, you know, learn what's going on out there from the heroes. A 12-year-old girl is safe after a stranger stepped in to stop a kidnapping in progress. Amy Martinez says she was just walking to school when a woman grabbed her out of nowhere. I thought that I was never going to see my mom or family again, Martinez said. Martinez was walking uh, to the school Wednesday morning when a woman ran across the street and grabbed her. As a woman forced her to walk, Martinez saw another woman driving by who rolled down her window. Amy was kind of struggling to get away, so then those were the signs that something wasn't right. So the hero stranger who did not want to be identified, our good Samaritan was driving by after dropping off her child at school. She sees our suspect who has our 12-year-old victim in one of her arms in a bear hug, dragging her down the street. So she pulled over and asked Martinez if she was okay. The girl said no. And that's when the woman thought quickly to come up with a little white lie to bring the situation to a safe end. She said in her mind, and, and, and only had five seconds to come up with it to save this girl. She tells the suspect that she's the child's mother and she wants the child's back, the child back. I was basically yelling, let her go, let her go, which uh, eventually the, um, the person did. 
the, the, she let the girl go and uh Boy, crazy, scary event. Police then came in, arrested uh, Claudia Hernandez-Diaz for the kidnapping attempt, all because of a good Samaritan who was there, whose motherly instincts kicked in and saved um, this child. How cool is that? It's what it takes, folks, just people paying attention. That's really all each of us can do in this crazy world is be there for each other. That is the show for us. We will be back again tomorrow with more ideas to help you love longer, live stronger lives, and, uh, you know, be closer to the ones you love. BYU Sports Nation is up next. 